This is Jocko Podcast number 289. As the seals from Zulu platoon inserted into a rice paddy near where they had taken fire, Nelson's Huey, a UH-1 Bravo gunship, commenced a right turn at 80 feet above the ground to cover them. Lieutenant Junior Grade Carl Nelson, a fire team leader at HAL-3 Detachment 1, commanded two Seawolf gunships during Zulu's last mission. He already had flown more than 600 combat missions. His co-pilot, Lieutenant Junior Grade Earl Shout, controlled the M134 miniguns, while Petty Officers Michael Dobson and Tom Clavon fired the left and right, respectively, M60 machine guns from the doors. Lieutenant Junior Grade Edward Dyer would pilot the Huey UH-1 Lima Sea Lord transport that would insert and later extract Zulu Zulu from a very hot landing zone. Shout worked the LZ's edge with his miniguns while Dobson and Clavon fired their M60s. The SEALs patrolled northeast and then east on a dike separating two rice paddies and then moved north to one perpendicular to the first. As they advanced, the enemy began firing from well-concealed and dug-in positions on a dike covered with heavy vegetation. The SEALs and Nelson's gunship immediately returned fire. As the patrol continued closer toward the tree line, the SEALs took accurate withering fire from both sides of the dike. Pointman Roland fell, shot through the groin. He was hit again as he crawled for cover. Seconds later, Telfer was shot in both legs. Both SEALs managed to return fire despite their wounds, but the severity of their injuries and the immediate necessity to extract them soon took them out of action. Lieutenant J.G. Richards immediately radioed Nelson for fire support as he and Lawrence advanced under fire to assist the two seriously wounded SEALs. Christened the Hulk by his fellow SEALs, Lieutenant J.G. Tom Richards was well-liked and respected, and he enjoyed a reputation as a highly capable operator. He was a native of Brightwaters, New York, and a graduate of Bay Shore High School where he wrestled and played football. Following graduation, he attended Villanova University on a Navy ROTC scholarship. There, he lifted weights and routinely bench-pressed 400 pounds. He was commissioned an ensign in the Naval Reserve in 1969. As Lieutenant J.G. Richards dragged Roland to cover, one round passed through Richards' right hand, hitting the stoner machine gun's pistol grip. Nevertheless, Lawrence Hedge and Futrell returned fire. Richards continued to expose himself to enemy fire to drag the wounded to cover. When the automatic weapons man Futrell was shot in the chest, he cried out, I'm hit, I'm hit. Lieutenant J.G. Richards, sensing the rising panic in Futrell's voice, suspected the man was going into shock. To distract him, Richards ordered Futrell to shut up and return fire. Futrell briefly did so with his M60 and did not go into shock. As Futrell became semi-conscious, Richards pulled him back as well. When Lawrence and Hedge ran out of ammunition minutes later, Richards passed them the linked 5.56 ammo for his now inoperable stoner machine gun. 
The squad regrouped behind a dike, and Richards urged the SEALs to keep pouring fire into the enemy as he radioed for emergency extraction. As the battle raged, extraction became imperative. Including himself, Richards had four wounded men, three of them critical. For Lieutenant J.G. Nelson and the Sea Wolves, there was no hesitation. He said, quote, My crew knew that leaving anyone behind was not an option. When Nelson saw Richards dragging the wounded seals to cover, he alerted Dyer to get ready for extraction and descended to cover it from an altitude of about 50 to 70 feet. From the ground, Lawrence and Hedge provided covering fire with their stoners. Nelson's gunship hit the enemy with devastating rocket and minigun fire while Dyer urgently searched for the SEAL's exact location. On his second pass, Dyer spotted them huddled next to a dike and came in hot, bleeding off airspeed during his approach. As the slick hovered, skids wet in the rice paddy, Richards dragged each of the three wounded seals in turn over the dike, then through the rice paddy to the helicopter, lifting each aboard with his one good hand. Richards later wrote, with one hand, it was probably my heaviest lift I ever made. Best one, too. Enemy fire intensified during the loading. Lawrence, still providing covering fire, was about to climb aboard when Dyer began to pull pitch for liftoff as enemy rounds hit the fuselage. Lawrence grabbed the slick skid and held on for dear life until the Hulk reached down with his uninjured hand and hauled Lawrence aboard. Having flown more than 600 combat missions with scores of those flights in direct support of two SEAL teams, Nelson vividly remembers the scene unfolding below his gunship as the platoon struggled to survive. Nelson recalls, quote, watching a wounded Tom Richards under intense enemy fire drag each of his wounded SEALs to safety across a series of rice paddy dikes and load them into the Sea Lord Kilo. It was the most heroic act that I have ever witnessed. Tom Richards' heroism rates a Navy cross at a minimum. He directly saved the lives of his platoon. And that's an article from the Naval Institute. You can find it online. And if you fast forward from that event, which took place in 1971, fast forward about 20 years to 1991. And I was a new guy at SEAL Team One and it was a Saturday morning and I was in the gym at SEAL Team One alone cranking some Metallica on the stereo system. And when I say cranking, I mean it was ear damaging levels of noise because I was young and stupid. And then the Hulk The Hulk walked in, and he was wearing his gym clothes, and he was there to get a workout. The same guy, this now who was Lieutenant JG. This is now Captain Richards, legendary SEAL that you just heard about. It's now twenty years later, and of course, I knew who he was. We all knew who he was. He was the Hulk. Then he walked into the gym to get his workout on, and so I respectfully walked over to the stereo. And, and turned turned it down, turned the dial about halfway back to bring it to a normal listening level. And as I did that, 
The Hulk shouted, hey. And I looked over at him and he said, turn that back up. (laughs) And I said, yes, sir. And I did. And you fast forward another six or seven years on top of that and I was walking in to the Admiral's office. Now Admiral Tom Richards, the Admiral in charge of all the SEALs. And I was going to interview with him, hoping to get a letter of recommendation for selection so I could get my commission and become a SEAL officer. And he gave me that recommendation and I did end up getting selected. And I'm certainly thankful to Admiral Richards for that, but more important, I'm thankful for what he did for America and for the teams and for me in the end. And therefore, I am also thankful for those helicopter pilots and crews for getting him and his platoon out of there. And these are the same helicopter crews that risked their lives time and time again to get the SEALs out of the worst possible situations. These were the legendary Sea Wolves, the U.S. Navy Helicopter Attack Squadron 3. And this is a unit, is the most highly decorated naval aviation unit, collectively awarded in Vietnam five Navy crosses, 31 silver stars, two legions of merit, 219 Distinguished Flying Crosses, 156 Purple Hearts, 101 Bronze Stars, 142 Gallantry Crosses, over 16,000 Air Medals, 439 Navy Commendation Medals, 228 Navy Achievement Medals, six Presidential Unit Citations, and two Meritorious Unit Commendations. And we have had the honor of having a Seawolf pilot on this podcast once before, Dennis Rowley, Podcast 153. If you haven't listened to that, go and check it out. But tonight, it is an honor to have two more Seawolf pilots with us, John Farr and Carl Nelson, the same Carl Nelson you just heard me read about, who provided cover fire while Zulu platoon extracted from a serious gunfight our relationship in the seal teams with the sea wolves in vietnam will never be forgotten and therefore it is an honor to have you two gentlemen with me here tonight thank you thank you for coming happy to be here so i know um well i know i could sit here and just listen to you guys tell stories about vietnam for the entire time which is which we will get to (laughs) but to start off a little bit uh let's start a little bit about where you guys came from and and how you grew up just so we have some background what do you think john you want to sure, start absolutely. and john you're the reason your was your son connected us right yes eric my son he was one that's a marine and he's big into jitsu so he would love this place <laughs> so he does quite a bit of that but yeah he's the one that's uh was in the military well th- thanks to him thanks to eric for for linking us up and and it's outstanding to have you here. so where'd you guys grow up john i grew up in the chicago area north of chicago went to high school there, and I went to a small college in uh, Indiana, St. Joseph's College, which is in Rensselaer, about halfway between Notre Dame and Purdue. Okay. And uh, my senior year, uh, there was a Navy recruiter came down looking for, uh, recruiting for the Navy uh, flight program. And I actually- So what year is this? This would have been 1968. Okay. So Vietnam is full on. Yes, yes. And, uh, And that was the year they had the lottery 
for the draft. Okay. And I got the paper. I started at 365 looking for my number. And I said, geez, I missed it. So I started at the top, went, went through it again. I said, they don't have my number in here. I flipped the paper over. The first number picked, I believe, was May 8th. The second number picked was April 24th, which was my birthday. So there's no doubt where I was going. <laughs> and I, at the same time, I was looking for a job, you know, graduating from college and everything. And one of the first questions they asked is, well, what's your draft status? And I said, well, it's A1. And most people said, well, why don't you come back after your service? And then I interviewed with Burroughs Corporation. They never asked the question, and I never provided the information, and I got hired. <laughs> so I got hired by Burroughs, graduated, started working with them. In the meantime, I passed this flight exam down in college, and he said, well, now you need to go up to Glenview for an interview and a physical. And I lived probably 20 minutes from Glenview in north of Chicago. So I said, this is great. So I went up to Glenview. My mean real reason for going up there was on Saturday night, I'd go down to Rush Street for the night. <laughs> and this I was back home. So I did that, went through the physical, and everything went fine. And I didn't hear anything for a while. You got to take something, go through the process. And then I started working at Burroughs. And what kind of company was Burroughs? Burroughs was a computer company. Sold calculators, okay. adding machines at the time. And uh, so I started working with Yeah, I was going to say a computer company in 1968. It's a little bit of a stretch, right? <laughs> well, well, they calculators, adding machines, things yeah. like that. But they did become one of the larger computer well, companies competing against IBM. In fact, later in my career, I had sold the largest computer that Burroughs made at the time to the University of Chicago Medical Centers hmm. just before they merged with Spiri. Got it. But that's we're off the track on that. <laughs> So anyway, I uh, started working. Then I got a notice from the Army to come in for my Army induction physical. About a week after that, I got a call from the Navy saying, congratulations, you've been selected for the Navy's flight program. And I says, well, I just started a job. I can't do this. And the guy says, son, you're in the Navy. When would you like to report? <laughs> and I says, well, what's the latest date you could give me? And it was October, I think October 18th. And I says, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> So now I got to go in and tell my boss I'm going to go in the Navy. So I went in early one morning because he was always in early and uh, sat down, talked to him, says, Joe, I went through this program and I've been selected for the Navy flight program. As it turned out, he was an, a Marine fighter pilot during World War II. Wow. And he says, hey, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You can't pass it up. Burles will always be here. So I worked the summer with them, and at the end, they had a little party for me, had this big cake. They had a bunch of little airplanes on it and, and gave me a kind of a, a nail clipper kit that I have to this day. <laughs> and uh, so that's how I ended up in the Navy. When and, you were when you were growing up, so you were going to high school in like the early 1960s? Yes, I graduated from 63 from uh, high uh, And it sounds like you were pretty... Uh, you so you had a plan, right? you know. You wanted a job. You kind of had a you you knew what you you knew that you were going to move forward in a positive way. Yes, very much so. Yes. Well, and my my father was was in a corporate world in business, and as a side story, he was actually Eisenhower's personal mess sergeant all during World War II. <sighs> he went over as Patton's mess sergeant. Eisenhower found out about him, brought him on his staff. And so he was with him for four years, and I might as well tell the story. And yeah. He finally no, got no, no wonder. Is uh, that you know, cool? I, there was some conflict between Eisenhower and Patton. He took his best freaking cook. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, 
then finally, before my dad passed away, we got him to write his memoirs uh, just for the family. And Carl, many of our friends have read it. And uh, in there, uh, one point, he was coming back to the States. And so he asked people on his staff, <laughs> would you like to come back to the States? And of course, all his... So this was Eisenhower was coming yeah, back to the yeah, States? to meet with Roosevelt got for it. just like a week or so. Of course, all his movements are top secret. So he wrote a letter to my mother and says, meet me at D.C. at this hotel. And it's all coded. So he came back, and of course, nine months later, <laughs> I'm around. And of course, my mother lived in Elmira, New York. That's where I was born. And uh, of course, nobody knew my dad had been home. <laughs> And, uh, talk in the so, neighborhood. Yeah, talk in the neighborhood. Over the benefits. So anyway, Eisenhower bought me a war bond. And at some point, it cashed that in. I wish it had kept it. It had been really worth something today. But I do have the letter signed by Eisenhower authorizing the purchase of that war bond when I was born. Outstanding. And, uh, but my dad served on his staff for about four and a half years. So I was probably a year old before I ever saw my father. But, uh, wow. but he thinks the world of Eisenhower and says he's never saw Eisenhower do anything that would challenge his integrity, his honesty, or his reputation. It's impressive. You don't hear that very much anymore these days. No, you don't. We could use Eisenhower now. So. Be nice. <laughs> All right, Carl. Yes. Where the heck did you come from? <laughs> <laughs> I was born a poor black child. I actually, uh, uh, believe it or not, I was born and reared in the panhandle of Texas. Between Memphis and Turkey, Texas, in Hall County, there was a little spot of dirt, and that's where I was born. And uh, Maggie and Dude's number three child, and um, I was the first Nelson male to graduate from high school. So I went to college. They thought I was a flipping genius. I mean, <laughs> that kid must know everything, right? So, uh, what, what did your parents do for work? Uh, they were. Children of sharecroppers and sharecroppers themselves. We didn't own anything but uh, raise cattle and get a cash crop, which I always got a kick of the term cash because we never made any money on it. <laughs> and that was cotton. And uh, are many people that you know, I'm sure, that drug a cotton sack at five, six, seven, and eight, and nine years old every fall? Our school started early, like in August, let out for a month in September, October, whenever the cotton was ready to harvest. And of course, we needed all the family to pick the cotton because there just wasn't enough labor. And uh, so dragging a cotton sack was, uh, and of course the rate going wages those days was when you paid somebody, and that wasn't often, was a what, dollar a hundred, a penny a pound hmm. for picking cotton. And uh, my dad picked a thousand pounds one day a long day. Most I ever got was like 200, but I was a little guy. So that's my roots. And uh, we moved to Oregon when I was in grade school, and and uh, it was a great relief getting away from that damn cotton. But the downside was uh, I'm chopping and cutting wood. You know, the old story goes <laughs> I was 15 before I knew my name wasn't Get Wood. I had to get wood all the time. And, of course, being a very wealthy family, I carried water, too. We didn't have a well. Uh, we had to get water from a couple miles away, so I'm carrying water. And uh, uh, sounds like a lot of ratio alger stories. My kids <laughs> yawn and roll their eyes. They've heard them. But uh, I'm really proud of my roots. And, and uh, it's interesting. I 
my goal was to be a high school football coach. First of all, I thought I was going to be a professional athlete. I was sure I was going to be in the NFL as a middle linebacker. Well, uh, I did get drafted, but the real world was there was a war going on. Um, I, I had just gotten married, and I thought, you know, I had a younger brother in the Army in Vietnam. And this is 1966 when I graduated. And uh, you were after John. I'm surprised by the way to hear. I was very surprised to hear that Tom Richards finished high school and and John Farr. That's breaking news <laughs> on the same program. You did it, Jocko. <laughs> but uh, um, I got a dream job. I, I thought if I don't, if I don't, I'll do the tryout in San Diego. I would do the tryout if, if. I don't get a real job that I really first-class job. I wanted a first assistant job in a high school, in a large high school in, in Oregon, and I, and I got that job. So I, I didn't go to camp. and uh, But then I had the guilt setting in all year long, and my brother's still serving. He's going for another tour in Vietnam, so I resigned my – I was to be the head football coach of Springfield High School the following fall, and it was like April, May, and I just – I couldn't do that. I resigned that job. I went to my department head. I taught boys PE and chemistry in high school. My chemistry department head was a guy named John Vogt, and John was an naval aviator. He says, what are you going to do? And I says, I think I'll probably join the Marine Corps. I don't know. He said, no, don't do that. Go fly. So Sandpoint Naval Air Station was open in those days up in Seattle, Washington. He says, come with me to reserve weekend and." And I went flying with him, and then we hung out in the Oak Club, and I was on the stage dancing with some Polynesian ladies, and I thought, I could do this. <laughs> I could do this job. So I, I took the test and did the interview, and, and I, I was in class 3268 in the fall of 68 in Pensacola, at an AOC class, and John, you were 38. 38, He was six weeks later. Okay. Okay. So, there so, you go. So, did you guys meet each other after that when you got into the actual aviation training program? Yeah, we I, met in Vietnam. Yeah, oh, okay. You didn't yeah, meet we got Vietnam. to be friends there. He was always enough far enough behind me that I didn't really get to know him. <laughs> Only three months. But, you know, as you go through, it's pretty intensive training. Right. And um, not a big socializer, nor was John, I don't think. And we worked pretty hard. And so, I really got to know John in Vietnam. Uh, matter of fact, I think we looked in the logbook today. My logbook's somewhere in the bottom of storage in Sanger, California, but I think we flew together probably a couple dozen times. Oh, yeah. And he was my, as we called it today, we called it a Clarence Pumpkin. Co-pilot, <laughs> <Okay>. CP. <laughs> Got it. He was my Clarence Pumpkin. So, and a damn good one, by the way. It's, uh, I don't want to make him feel too good about himself today, but he, you know, it's critical. Every job in a cockpit's a critical thing, combat or not. But... Uh, getting where you're going and all systems being switches in the right position. And when you roll in and put me hot, that means we know what we're going to do with the intervalometer, whether we're going to fly a pair, fire a pair or two pair. Or, and keeping an eye on things as a co-pilot, besides operating the miniguns or whatever else he does. Mm -hmm. So John was excellent. And, then, and having a co-pilot knows what he's doing, 
more than once you have to fly with guys, and you probably have too, John. Sure you just look over and say, don't touch a dang thing. <laughs> just don't touch anything. I'll let you know when I want you to do something. But John wasn't that kind of guy. He was a, he was a, he was in the mode. He was a good guy. So when did you guys figure out or get assigned helicopters as opposed to whatever else the Navy has to offer? Is that happening at flight school, at well, the end of yes. flight school? Yeah. Well, you go through flight school and you go through primary training, which is flying the T-34, the advanced training, which is flying the T-28. It's after that, that if you've done your carrier landings and your instrument flying, your formation flying, stuff like that, either go multi-engines, jets, or helos. In my situation, my class, they were needing helo pilots for Vietnam. So they took my whole class and said, you guys are going helos. And for me, it didn't, it wasn't a burning desire for one or the other. There were some people that wanted multi-engine because they wanted to go with the airlines mm-hmm. or people that wanted to go jets because they wanted to go jets. And I told the guy, I says, well, I'd like to fly the big transports. And he said, well, then you should have joined the Air Force. <laughs> so, so going with Heels was, was fine with me mm-hmm. and uh, got through the program. I'm glad I did. And, and I think flying in HAL 3 was probably the last of the World War II type flying. As long as you brought the plane back in one piece, they really didn't care you know what you did. There was a lot of there were there were rules and flight rules, but you know the job was to get the mission done, and that was the main thing. And whatever it took to get the mission done, that's what you needed to do. I I was in flight school, and my I had my flight instructor. My primary flight instructor was a guy named I'll say his name Johnny Hankel. Johnny's retired in Florida. I just called him the other day to thank him. I haven't talked to him since 1969, and so I, I on the Sea Wolf mail list that you get comes in with addresses numbers. I said, there's Hankel. That's the same guy, I bet. I called him up. A lady answers the phone. Uh, Who may I say is calling? I said, tell him Carl Nelson's calling, like he knows, like he remembers 42 years ago. And so uh, more than that, 52 years ago, I'm sorry. So he comes on the phone cautiously like, I'm not buying anything type of voice. Hello? I said, Johnny Hankel. He says, who's calling? He didn't admit to anything. Well, I I said, hey. I'm a flight student of yours from February of 1969, softly field, T-34. And he says, Jesus Christ, <laughs> really? And I said, I'm sure you remember me. And he said, actually, I don't. And I said, I know you don't. But here's what he did. I, I was getting ready to solo, and I thought I was going to fly just because I joined. I left my teaching and coaching job. I went in the military because I wanted to serve in Vietnam where my brother was serving. And he was serving Actually, back up the clock. I when I got into officer candidate school, he was serving. Uh, sadly, he was killed in action on November twenty third, nineteen sixty eight. So, twenty two year old young man, second tour, infantry, twenty fifth infantry, and uh, so. Anyway, I, I was in a hurry to get there. I wasn't trying to get even. That wasn't my goal. I just wanted to serve, and, and I wanted to get to Vietnam, and I thought just was the only way to get there. I knew I couldn't do it in the transport. I didn't want to fly mail to Saigon. Oh, God bless the mail guys. But And so I read about there was a pool in advanced training at, in, in Mississippi. I thought, oh, my God. I'll, and then Nixon's trying to stop the war. Good Lord, that guy's trying to ruin my plan. So I got, I was pretty depressed. And what, was the, what was the pool? What do you mean there was a pool? Well, there were, in, in flight training, they try to keep them moving through quickly. They're, they're on a schedule. 
to, to get students through the syllabus every flight from primary to advanced. And after advanced, I mean, after primary, you go to, you go to Meridian, Mississippi to advanced jet training, or you, you go to, to uh, the... Ellison for... The yeah, the, the T-28 flying, where they're, they're preparing you for fixed wing or helicopter, mm-hmm. or for, for multi-engine helicopter. And so that's where the decision was made after you finished primary and, and softly field VT-1, they called it, the T-34 mentor. So I was, you know, I'm getting down to about three or four more flights to go, and, I, and, and, and a pool would be where there was a weather holdup or a maintenance holdup or whatever, and the students were backed up. Got it. And so instead of getting through Meridian, which was kind of intermediate training, instead of getting through Meridian in six weeks, it might be three, four, five months. And I thought, good Lord, I will never get out of here. Because after Meridian, you got to go to Kingsville and Beeville, and then you get your wings, and then you go to Arag, and it, you know, it's a long time. I didn't have much time. Uh, from the time I started flight school until I got my wings, uh, it was 11 months and nine days. I was in a hurry. It was an 18-month program. John went through pretty quickly, too. Um, I was in a, in a hurry. Well, that day, Hankel says, what's, what's wrong? You seem a little down. I said, I'm way down. Here's the deal. they got a pool and Meridian. I'll never get out of this damn place, and the president's going to stop the war. What am I going to do? This is awful. And I gave up my great coaching job. And he says, what are you doing tonight? I said, I'm studying, sir. I wasn't studying. <laughs> he says, come to my house. He gave me the address. I go to his house. My wife and I, and this is, you know, he's a JG, pretty important guy when you're an ensign. Yeah, yeah. And he's got his wings and everything. Sure. And I thought, wow, you know, I'm going to an officer's house, and he's a senior officer. And <laughs> I get there, and we have, I don't know what we had for dinner. I don't remember. I was just nervous, you know, and what do I do? How do I act? trying to remember all the charm school stuff they told us well he brings out eight millimeter movies how three movies mm. and i went oh my god where what is that and he told me and i went man i would i i flew out of his house and i flew all the way through to get my wings at ellison and then i sweated ellison because at my week to get my wings they only two slots for how three could you believe that two slots Buzzy Bazell and I, Buzzy passed, great guy, great friend, but uh, Dick Buzzle and I got the orders. So, so was that the first time you heard of HAL 3? First time I heard of HAL 3 was from Hankel at VT1 when he showed me the home movies. And uh, I, and I didn't tell anybody about it, like my secret. I wanted, I wanted <laughs> to make sure I got the job. I'm not giving any leads to anybody. So it was a blessing, and I'll tell you, I'm, I'm talking too much, and I'm getting this book be for John here, but greatest thing that it, probably not out of, outside of the birth of my two daughters, the greatest thing that happened to me because of the mission was incredible, incredible guys to fly with, and working with SEAL teams and with the boats, really a, 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 a mission. We were needed, and it, there's not a better mission on earth than that, I thought. It was. When um, when you get assigned to HAL 3 out of flight school, where do you go? Well, the first thing we had to do is we had to go to Fort Rucker for three weeks for gunnery training because the Navy didn't have any gunnery training for the helos or anything. The Army had that. So we spent three weeks in Fort Rucker, which is 
in Alabama, went through gunnery training, then we had to go through SEER school for escape and evasion and that, so we went through that, and that was interesting. And I did mine in Little Creek, and actually was out in the field in uh, Coronado. And I can remember after that, and you're out there for about three or four days, and coming back, they were on a bus bringing us back to the base after this. Then they stopped at this hamburger place. And I hadn't had anything to eat, mm -hmm. you know, for three or days or so. Went in, got a cheeseburger, and I can taste that cheeseburger <laughs> till today. The best <laughs> cheeseburger I've ever had. And uh, But then uh, we got back, and then you got orders. It was, it was actually about six months from the time we finished flight school before I got to Vietnam, which was the 1st of August. And I got my wings in February. It was two of us that got our wings. The other was a Marine pilot. And uh, he was flying Cobras, and he was actually killed in Vietnam. Mm. Did, did HAL-3 have any presence in America? Like, was there a headquarters here or anything? No. So no. you didn't even, you, you was, that's it. You were just kind of on your own, working right. through the system. Yeah. And actually, then, the squadron was commissioned and decommissioned in Vietnam. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's it's like the only one that's commissioned yeah, right. and decommissioned right. in a combat zone. Right. So there's, but there's no presence. There's no headquarters back here, nothing. No. So you don't even meet your team until you get to Vietnam. There you go. Ben Tui, right. I just had the pleasure, by the way, I go back to Louisiana annually because, and I'll say it here, one of my, not named to be unnamed, but one of my door gunners, uh, unfortunately, is in prison in, in Angola, not a good place to be, Louisiana, uh, life. And uh, while I, on this trip, uh, I got to meet a guy, 92-year-old Robert Spencer, retired Navy captain, the first commanding officer of HAL-3. He stood the squadron up. Yes, he did. And yeah. he's, uh, if you saw the scramble, the sea wolves, mm -hmm. little, he's in there. Mm -hmm. And uh, quite a character. <laughs> and you go to his house, and he'll smoke 25, 30 cigarettes in an hour, and I was there, and drank eight or 10 bottles of beer right there in a little cooler right next to his chair, right next to his chair. Great guy, great guy. How old's that? What's the, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say he's 92, he's probably doing pretty well. So. <laughs> but, uh, so my, my first, when I got to Hell 3, then we got to Ben Tui, and then you had the first part of it, you have these fam flights, just to get familiar with the area. And one of my first flights, I was just telling Carl about this today, that uh, one of my first flights was to hoist a three-holer down to debt six. Expand then, on that. So, <laughs> so, so then Carl says, well, we built our three-holer. So the three-holer was a, the outhouse. Okay, And they it. didn't have one down at debt six because debt six was just kind of forming up. And uh, so I went there and dropped that off. And it was uh, That was your first combat mission? I guess my, one of my first missions, yes. I was, was in a combat zone. Kind of, he was hauling a crapper, yeah. slinging but it. But then, so one of my later flights was about a month later was when uh, uh, we had one of our helos get shot down. And this was at VC Lake, which down down near where Debt 6 was, down by Sonnendock. And uh, I was flying with a guy that was in his last couple of weeks in Hell 3. And most of the time, they are just doing easy stuff. We got this call, the helo was down. We went in to get the people out. Uh, everybody was killed. We were, it was in a kind of a swamp area. We were able to get one of the bodies out. And we're at the hall, this time we're taking fire. And I was shooting an M16 out of the, and I was a co-pilot, I'm shooting it outside. You finally get the one body, and we get out, and some Cobras came and able to get us out. 
Then they brought in some uh, Val 4, the Black Ponies, and they kind of cleared the area, and then they were able to secure it and get them out the, the next day. But when we get back and landed, probably a foot behind where I was sitting, there was a round of five rounds <laughs> right behind where I was sitting. <laughs> so that was my very first combat. And that uh, You'll hear about V.C. Yeah. Lake. What was that date, John? That was uh, September? September 15th. Big, and so, major, major, yeah. major operation. Uh, we lost four sea wolves that, that day. day. Yeah. <laughs> All from Det 6. Yeah. So then uh, two weeks later, I was assigned to Det 6 as one of the replacement pilots. So it was funny. I, first I take the three-holder down there. Then they got this mission where they lost some of the pilots. And then I'm, I am assigned to Det 6. So I was, like, destined to be there. And you said to yeah. them? I was the guy that brought you your first three-holer. <laughs> <laughs> I showed up and I said, I brought your three-holer. I'm John Farr. Oh, okay, come on. <laughs> and so we were there, and actually, Son and Doc got blown up, so we want to go to that story, on the 20th of October. I got there the 8th of October, and we got mortared. And the Son and Doc was on the river, and we, had, we didn't have any perimeter around where the helo pad was, but they had all the barges and that for the swift boats. So all the swift boats were down there, big barges with fuel and everything. It was about, you know, 20, 30, you know, a couple hundred feet from where the heel pad was. And one night, you can, it's very distinct sound when you've got the incoming. So you, we heard the incoming, <clears throat> ran to the bunkers, and it was late, early evening, and I was actually reading Catch-22. It was about halfway through it. I still have, I haven't, still haven't finished the Well, that's the ironic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So there was a little lull in the action, we ran to the, and I was on flight status, and I ran to the helos, and we got airborne, and we flew the rest of the night. And we caught, then health, we scrambled that one. They were just done. I was there. Liver, and Earl and Carl, we flew all night long, just putting in strike after strike, going back, rearm, refuel. Finally, in the morning, we kind of got it secured. We went back and landed on the pad. And they had come in and ransacked their shacks and everything. We wanted to make sure, if the, get the, see if the people were still in the bunker. They actually had gotten to the barges and got on Smith boats and got out to sea. So everybody, I think there was only one person that was killed that was on one of the barges. But halfway through the night, they finally hit the fuel barge. You see this huge fireball come up. And you could see it from down where that one was, which was you know probably 50 clicks away or so. And, uh, Easy to then, navigate there. Look at a big, bright flight, yeah. And then the, the next day we found out there was five rockets pointed at the helos because you're most vulnerable just as you're starting to, to mm. lift off. And for some reason, he messed up. They didn't work, but they didn't go off. And we found out afterwards we were first detachment to ever take off during a mortar attack and make it. <laughs> Another record. So, yeah. <laughs> And so then, so now, did you, now. Did you ever start to feel like you had some kind of black cloud over your head? Because right no. now we got rounds hitting behind you, replacement the guys that were killed. You got the first person to take off during no, the mortar attack. This is only in the first two months, or three months. And uh, No wonder you didn't finish reading Catch-22 because you realized you were freaking crazy. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but the thing is, and we had Carl and I were talking about this the other day. He says, you know, we were there to do a job and do a mission. So you never thought about those things. You never thought about the negative, you know, what could happen. You maybe years later think, boy, I had some close calls, and we did. 
but not when it was happening. When you were, it's like the air, you know, when they see the pilots are always so calm, you're always flying the airplane, and that's all you're focused on, mm-hmm. is to fly the airplane. What the engines go out or that, is it, well, why aren't they screaming or anything? Because they're focused on doing their job, which is to fly the plane safely and land it. How well did you guys feel you were trained when you showed up there? Highly trained. I, I think we were some of the better pilots and because uh, we were very trained and we'd done this a million times and then flying in combat it was a little more intense and we're you're focused on your job I, I think the Navy does a great job of training their pilots mm-hmm. you know just doing the carrier landings was a piece of cake I said what's so hard about this of course we did it on a, a beautiful day calm seas but we had shot you know probably a thousand approaches simulated at land mm-hmm. so you get out to sea and it wasn't it was nothing hard about it at all of course at night in rough seas that's mm-hmm. a different story but uh, the, the HAL 3 had nine detachments in throughout the Mekong Delta uh, strategically placed all the way from Cambodian border down to where I was um, down in the lower Kamal Peninsula and if you were fly, if you got in trouble at night, you needed a matter vac at night, or an, an advanced tactical support base, an ATSB kind of a triangle shape, and they got concertina all around it, and they got hit all the time at night. They scrambled the seawolves, and we would fly. We were all weather pilots uh, in those days. Yeah, and most of the yeah. army guys were not all weather pilots. They were VLF, VFR daylight pilots. Not right. all of them, but <clears throat> most of them. I was going to say by all weather. That includes nighttime. Nighttime and rain. Yeah. There would be monsoon season. You can barely see in front of your face. We're flying instruments in an old UH-1B, but we were all instrument trained, mm-hmm. and we were heavily instrument trained. After we got our through our primary training in T-28, we had instrument training there. We went through another squadron, VT-6. Nothing but instrument training. So we got all we got transition to the aircraft, precision and acrobatics. And then we got over to do instruments, and they did instruments again, and then went to do FCLPs, field landing carrier practice, a lot of them, before you go hit the boat. In those days, every naval aviator had wings on, was carrier qualified. Mm. Not anymore. We're saving money now. So not anymore. And and obviously the Army's just not even landing on carriers at all. And and you don't – I mean, just in the regular Navy – well, you got to fly a helicopter to do a re- to do a resupply at sea, and there's that deck's moving, and you got to do all weather anyways. And there's no horizon half the time, and everything else. Whereas, right. you, you don't necessarily have to contend with that in some of the other services. Uh, it was always interesting to me when an air cav package would come down to where I was, solid anchor sea float, but solid anchor when we had the runway, they would come and get there by nine, and they usually leave by five. Got to get back. And, it and dark, when, it, right. when it gets dark, you know, okay. Uh, uh, but to be fair, when you mentioned Song and Doc, I had a memory as I was a co-pilot in those days. And um, I was co-pilot for, uh, to go unnamed, an ONC. <laughs> and we usually flew at 800 feet. And he had to be 1,200 feet that night. I, I said, sir, we're getting nosebleeds up here. We, our rockets are burning out before they hit the ground. <laughs> but anyway, that remind, that's what Song and Doc reminds yeah, me of. Yeah. So after that, they brought in an LST, and we, did, we flew off an LST the rest of the time that we were down there at Song and Doc. After that 
So the, right. that, that base got kind of overrun then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they, they got it secure, and they, they still kept the, the ship boats there and everything. But they did but overrun they, but, it that night, didn't yes, they? they did. Yes, they did. And then they left, I'm assuming? Yeah, they left? Yeah. Well, we secured the area. We got the, the area secured again, and we went back in. But then they moved the helo pads. Well, we didn't keep the helo pad. They brought in an LST, mm, and we flew it. off the LST the rest of the time. So, so going back to showing up, you show up there, you feel like you're, you, you're, you're saying you were well-trained, and then what was the kind of on-the-job training procedure to get you guys where, you know, you start, you, do you start off as a co-pilot every time? Is every new guy starting off as a co-pilot? Yes. We didn't have enough time. Your minimum time for an aircraft commander was 500 total flight hours. Most of us showed up out of training command with 250, 260, 270. So you transition in any squadron or Navy, when you get there new, you have to transition to the type. You go through what's called a RAG, mm-hmm. replacement, a lot of acronyms, as you know, <laughs> replacement air group. And so you go to the RAG, study up on all the systems, fly the airplane, and you're a co-pilot. When you have enough time and you qualify, you become aircraft commander. And with HAL-3, uh, once you show the capability to, to manage and control two aircraft and tactically be more knowledgeable, you become a fire team leader, FTL, mm-hmm. another acronym. So John was an FTL. We were, yeah, most of us were. Yeah. And then what? at what point did you realize who who you were supporting when you saw that when you saw the eight millimeter home movies where was he saying hey we're supporting the seal teams over there and let me tell you what the seal teams are yeah he did and i never heard of a seal i had no idea what a seal was and i forgot what it was and I had to ask him the next day what did you say they were <laughs> and he said well they're like like frogmen i said yeah i know what movies in world war ii i knew what frogmen were and he said well they've evolved from that from udt they're still a udt but they're and and then that was 1968, the SEALs hadn't been around a long time no. as SEALs. And, uh, yeah, and I uh, remember going to, first of all, a sea float was a bunch of barges tied together and, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the, Bo- the Bode River, I think it was, in Squamalpa Peninsula. And uh, <laughs> it was great because they had two SEAL platoons there. We lived on these barges. You, the, the Johns were... You, the river was rushing down below this way at morning and this way in the afternoon. And, and all night long, you couldn't sleep at first when you're a new guy because they're setting off concussion grenades all night. <laughs> and the next morning, many mornings, there'd be a sapper that was trying to get there to blow the place up, laying up the, over on the bank, bloated up in the sun, you know. And, uh, and a couple times they got sappers on the boat, but they got them. The seals got them before they did any damage. But it's amazing uh, the perseverance of some of those characters. I think the, the primary mission was we were, the, we were the close air support for the swift boats going up and down the canals. And if you ever go, I've gone to places and talked to somebody, and he was on the swift boats, and he found out I was in HAL 3, and he's buying me beers the rest of the night. <laughs> So they, the, the Swift Boat guys really, and the SEALs as well, supported the Sea Wolves. Oh, yeah. The, the, it's it's uh, legendary to, to make sure you give nothing but full respect to the Sea Wolves when you're in the SEAL teams, for sure. Uh, so what's the what's a normal mission look like? How are you getting the tasking? What do you are you are you meeting with guys beforehand? Are you meeting with the SEAL platoons and going over, hey, here's where we want to get dropped off? Well, how's that, what does that look like? 
Well, and Carl can speak to that because he had he was with the seals on that six. We didn't have any seals with us. We just had the swift boats, and there wasn't a lot of coordination with the swift boats except when they got in trouble, they call us up and scramble us for for close air support when they got into trouble. But the seals, those missions were coordinated, and I'll let Carl speak to that. They he had. Many types of missions, as you know, Jocko, they, uh, and, and many times they would just be advising us, look, we're going to go in at night, and we're going to go by boat, you know, we, they've got a Kit Carson scout that's mm-hmm. going to lead them in, intelligence says XYZ is here, and they would let us you know where they're going to be, and the coordinates of where they're going to be, and, and, uh, and I'll tell a story here about John Sandoz. I'll use your name, John, and, and outstanding officer. And the good news on him is he operated often and heavy and nightly, it seemed like. I don't think he got it. There was one Purple Heart in his group, but he was a heavy operator, and, and hats off to him on that one. So, But he did a night operation. One night, he let us know where he was going to be, and, and I was. we were on ready five to scramble the aircraft all our gears all in we've done all the checks we've cranked it once it's ready to go and you literally hop in there and you're airborne and like you know i've heard the term three minutes we made we got off a lot quicker in three minutes lots of times and we got airborne and it was black literally black well we'd pre-brief john we gave john uh what the strobe what was the strobe called that we had john that we carried the little strobes that it had a guard around it, and it was oh a directional oh, strobe. Yeah, it was a, yeah. and he had one, and he had a Prick ninety radio of mine that I gave him because <laughs> it was small and yeah. it was easy to operate. And so John himself, tough seal, he's out there, and the enemy's over here, and freedom's over here, and John is between both of them, and he's going to defend, and he's out there. Sea uh, Wolf one three, uh, uh, put some fire in. Uh, Northeast about three, about uh, uh, zero three zero, and just walk it in, and I'll tell you that when to stop. Okay, so we, we, I rolled in and started laying rockets in, and, and it was hilarious because he goes, okay, a little closer, uh, a little closer. Uh, and his voice starts raising a little bit closer. That's close enough. <laughs> and I could hear, yeah. I could hear yeah. rockets going off in the background. And I was here. I am safe and sound at eight hundred feet or whatever I was, six hundred feet. And it was hilarious. <laughs> and I never let him forget that ever. <laughs> so when you're flying at, uh, I mean, it's really. Uh, how black it can be at night like it can be so dark outside so when it's that dark you're just flying pure instruments you're just looking at yours you're not even looking out, out outside because there's nothing to see unless you're looking at fire coming up at you okay <laughs> that and so, some and then, sometimes, it, then it's real bright <laughs> sometimes you get lucky and there's a moon out mm-hmm. if there's a moon right. out then you get flashes yeah. of light off the squigglies and mm-hmm. rivers and streams and yeah and but yeah, there's nights out there when you're like this, and that's when you have to have a co-pilot who knows what he's doing, who can navigate, because you're busy as hell keeping that thing on altitude, on heading, and realize you've got a wingman who's got to have discipline too. He's got to know the heading you're on and the alt- You got any collision light, top and bottom, mm-hmm. so you can keep track of each other. But it's uh, it can get hairy out there at night, and it's. Uh, 
You know, some guys, you look over one time, I mentioned Earl Schott's name. Earl was a co-pilot of mine many times, good guy. But he was over there like this. He got the leans pretty bad because the semicircular canals kind of get messed up, and you think uh, you're level, but you're not when you start when you start getting vertical. vertical. He's over there like this. I said, "Okay, Earl, it was just a, we weren't in combat or anything. We were just flying." And he's over there leaning sideways. I said, "Okay, Earl, you got it." He said, "Oh, that's okay, that's okay." No, oh, Earl, you got it. He said, "Oh," and I'm over there laughing. The crew's laughing, but uh, Earl, excellent pilot. But once in a while, you can get him like that. But uh, no, it is dark, and it's like, um, how do you say, the inside of somebody's rectum? How do you say that nicely? It's dark. <laughs> I think you just did it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but once again, you, if you do it enough, you, you know how to do it, and you're, you're comfortable doing it. So what so, were the swift, let's talk about the swift boat operations, because those guys were pushing up and pushing the envelope into enemy territory. What, what was that op tempo like? Well, there's scramble you, and you'd, you'd go to where the coordinates were, and then you were just putting in fire. And, and once again, you were, they would say, shoot right over our heads. And say, well, why don't you move, pull back a little bit just to make sure. But those, those would get intense, and I think, I think you saw quite a bit of that when you did the, the documentary on scramble of mm-hmm. seawolves. And that's what it was like. We were out there supporting them, putting in close fire to them just so they could get back out of that situation. And you mentioned, John, you mentioned the the – World War II attitude when it comes to flying and fighting, and I mean, I, I get that. But can you can you talk a little bit more about? I, I know that you the way you all felt about a your gunners, the guys that were on your birds, but also your maintenance crews that were keeping your birds up and running and using beer cans to patch them up and whatever else. So that's that that's sort of the World War II mentality that you're talking about, where you said there were rules, but. <laughs> but you had to do the mission, right? And I think that was part of it. Every it was a team effort. So you talk about the the gunners and the maintenance people. We all worked very well together. We all had our part to do, and it was all coordinated, and it all came together. And we had to get make the gunners do their job, the maintenance people, and it just it was a team effort, and, and everybody supported the team, and all had the the same mission to do even though it was a different part. It's like a football team. You know, you got your job to do, and it doesn't work unless you're doing your part of the job. And uh, that's what we did. It just uh, worked. I was going to say, and you ought to know, Jocko, is that a fire team and most attachments would come on for 24 on, 24 off. For 24 on, you're on for scrambles. You get your meals and you get your rest when you can. But you're on duty from noon to noon. Usually we did it, mm-hmm. but wherever. But and when you and anything that happened during that time, uh, your, your your crews at the ready. You're you're all briefed, and by briefed, you go down to to what we call TOC with the Army, the the Operations Center. Mm-hmm. We know where are there where their artillery's at. We know where the units, all the units are. We know what their radio frequencies are. We know what the planned operations are. We have a general idea where the bad guys are, but most of the time, when we weren't actually involved in a combat operation, we'd be patrolling and basically looking for trouble. That's what we always did, and we'd usually find it. And uh, sometimes people get it. It never. I can't. I have a hard time thinking about a flight that I was on that we didn't get shot at. I, I'm sure there were some, but it's, it was rare that we didn't get shot at. 
And we wanted them to shoot at us because we could shoot back. We could know where they were. Didn't have to call for a clearance. They shot at you. You could just return fire. In my AO, our AO, down at Dead One, before I went to Dead Six was John, and the AO we had was literally a free fire zone. We could shoot any eligible age male. Now, we didn't. Mm Mm-hmm. We were, I mean, that's not how we operated. You don't go, we didn't go blowing up hooches and shooting randomly and shoot it, we didn't shoot it at we didn't do that, honestly, ever. I mean, you do that on somebody's crew and you're going to get your butt kicked off and back to back to home guard in a heartbeat. We were professional, but eligible male could be that we just, we might just take his sand pound out from under him, you know, because he's in the wrong area. We don't kill the guy, but he, he's swimming. And, uh. If it's uh, a guy who gets stupid and starts shooting back, well, then we erase that guy. And But, again, we were pre-brief. We knew where everything was, what was going on. And uh, more often than not, we could brief TOC as well as they could brief. We could get the frequencies from them, mm-hmm. but the intel we could feed to them. We knew what was going on everywhere. So in a 24-hour period where you're on, so you said you do 24-hour on and then 24-hour off? In the 24-hour period that you're on, how much time are you in the air? Depends on um, what kind of operation you have. But uh, I honestly, uh, I, I flew a lot because I was a dependent. The more airborne I was, the better pilot I was, the better my crew was because everybody's doing their job. They loved it. I loved it. And the better we knew our area of operations. Um, I have uh, many times flown if you say every other day is 15 days, um, I've flown many months for 100 to 130 hours a month. And during the day, maybe 8 to 10 hours, it wasn't unusual. Yeah. We, we were looking at your logbook today, and we flew together that first month uh, at Death All Six. day long, yeah. All day long. Yeah. And that every was time— our, That was our job, is to fly. <laughs> you know, sitting in the hooch, we're not doing our job. So we were out flying, just— even if it was just training, looking for action or looking for something. So. When you're day off, what are you doing? You're doing your job, whether it's ops or admin or maintenance or whatever your job is, or sleeping because you know the next day you may not get any sleep. So you, you sleep. And uh, no, it was, we were JGs. <laughs> and I remember I was getting a fitness report debrief from my ONC, very nice man. I didn't know what a fitness support. I knew what it was. I saw it in class sometime, <laughs> but but I barely knew what a fitness support was. And, and he was stroking me, and I didn't know it. But he he says, "Now, Carl, I, I know you really like this mission. You're really enjoying it. Oh yes, yeah, sir. I mean, I was just." He says, "But the real Navy's not like this. You're not going to go to a squadron and have this much authority and responsibility." I mean, we're out there deciding who lives and who dies every day. And we're trying to make the right decision every day. I think we did. And he was right. We got to Lakehurst, and what was it like? I know. So we were JGs, and you're a fire team leader. You're responsible for that whole flight. You're in charge of it. Even if you got a lieutenant commander sitting next to you, you're the one that's calling the shots (laughs) as a JG because you're in charge of it. And that was important. I think— and I look at, people say, what's the best period of your life? Some say, oh, it was high school or college. I can honestly say the best period of my life was the six years I spent on active duty in the Navy. The, rent, the friendships you make during that period, especially in combat, are so close. 
closer than any of the friendships I have. So like Carl and Earl and Tim Zemer, you know, we're all there. We've done the same thing together. And we had a reunion, what, 10 years ago now? It was 2009 at my house up. 12 years ago. 12 years ago up in He's Chicago. not good at math. <laughs> and, uh, and Carl, well, first of all, I invited Earl and his wife up to Chicago because his wife had never been to Chicago. So I'll oh, come up, we'll show you the, this big city and the bright lights and everything. And then an hour later, I get a call from Carl. He says, well, thanks for inviting me because I early <laughs> talked to him in the meantime. And I says, well, Carl, you've been here before. You're always welcome. The next thing I know, I had my house full of people coming up for a reunion. We had 14 this, guys showed up. Yeah, this was on the 4th of July. Forrest got free food and booze. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we got a big tent, put it up in the backyard and everything, and we had this little reunion. And John Santos, we always had a seal that every one of our – Union is very small. It was just a small group of people that were together. What I found interesting about it, the first time that we did it, some of these people I hadn't seen in 40 years. And so where you started was a common denominator was Vietnam. Remember this mission? Remember that guy? Remember that incident? By the end of the evening, it was like we'd just seen him last weekend. Mm -hmm. I was amazed at how fast you could catch up with somebody. They should do a study on that. <laughs> well, it's like your family, you know, these guys know all your crap, and they still <laughs> like you. And you, they know you on bad days and good days. And I'm going to tell a story. It's it's one of those. This is, this ain't no no, but it's true. I, he talked about being when you're in charge of a fire team, you're in charge, and and rank matters, but rank in the cockpit goes away. You may say, sir, but you're in charge of the airplane. Your co-pilot's a captain. Okay, captain, sit there, don't touch anything. That you're in charge, and and it's Navy regs that your your aircraft cannot be commandeered by some guy on the ground saying fly over here and do this. No, the only person that can commandeer your aircraft and your aircraft commander is a flag officer, a line officer, in your back sitting in a seat is the only guy that can override an aircraft commander, flag officer. So. That in mind, one night at that one, <laughs> Captain Martin Twight, great guy. He's passed on now. He was our SEAL. He came to fly that one. And, you know, you start flying, and you don't mean it in a bad way, but you get your chin out and your chest out, and you're aggressive, and, you, and no BS. You can laugh and have fun, but the mission's serious. It's no screwing around. So Captain Twight wanted to go on a combat flight, so he came down and and he was my co-pilot. Of course, I sat in the left seat and respectfully let him have the right, which the aircraft commander in a helicopter. My wingman was two other guys. I won't use their names, but lieutenant commander and a lieutenant. And I'm a JG, very a very green JG, but not so, green. So you're the junior guy in rank, but you're the but you're the flight. I'm the fire team leader. Got it. And we're down there at the TOC, and there was this army guy who I didn't like anyway. He was a captain. He didn't like me. He was just. <laughs> He was just too good at two-shoes and didn't know squat what he was talking about. <laughs> so he's up there, and he's briefing those eagles on Captain Twight. He kept, you know, kissing up, and I just said, stop, stop. Brief me. This is not the Army. This is the Navy. The Navy, it has nothing to do with rank. It's who's the smartest guy here. And on this mission, I'm the smartest guy here. Brief me. Captain Twight shook his head, looked down, and said, Carl, he, he was so nice to me. He should have slapped me, but he didn't do that. 
And that Army guy was mad, but there's nothing he could do about it. But that's kind of how it is. The aircraft commander is the ultimate. It's like the captain of a ship. You, what you say goes, and your job is to do the right thing. I want I want to try and get a little bit better feel for the some of the operations and I, I mean just the the first operation that you t- were talking about going to the VC Lake and you're going to recover a helicopter like talk us through from you get the call to you you're leaving the scene and you've got the body recovered what was it you know you're sitting in your you're sitting in the in the in the ready room and all of a sudden the call comes in what does no, that look like we, no i was on a fam flight so we were out flying just in the general area and we get this call that a helo was down we got the coordinates and we were close to the coordinates so we were there fairly quickly so we got in and you have are you always you're always flying with a section of birds of two birds you're always flying no, together this this was a single bird okay because it was a it was a well, you it was a John was new one. in country and you were flying an admin flight right yes you were flying so a slick, slick flying slick, slick. so right. flying a slick Unarmed. you, you but might we still had you still had door gunners you still had the crew in the back mm-hmm. but you might fly alone if you're doing an admin mission you yes, might fly with just right. one bird yeah. like when you hoisted the three holder down it was just a single <laughs> flight I didn't. that's right because so. you weren't you weren't looking to be in you know a mission a combat mm-hmm. mission per se you so were just you, trying to get familiar with the air but if something happens you got to respond to it and we did this bill belts was the, it was his last week in country and he flew in and tried to get these guys out as best we could. And the, the so crew Bill Belts was your was your he, he was the the helicopter commander pilot the one that went down or the one that you were in the one I was in okay so the one he, that you're in yeah. it's his last week in it's country his last week in country he's getting ready to go home and everything but he was showing me around the area stuff as as a new pilot and then we get this call that he goes down respond to it and the crewman in the back once we got down. Low, they got, they jumped out. Went How over long did it take you to get to, to, to find the, to find the down helo? Oh, it was minutes. You have coordinates. Yeah. You can see yeah. smoke. It's. Well, we couldn't, there wasn't any smoke or anything, but it was down. It was a kind of swampy area, mm-hmm. so there wasn't any fire. But uh, we were close to the area. They gave us the coordinates, which are, we were kind of right there. So mm-hmm. we were there within, I want to say we were, you know, five, ten minutes after, within five minutes. Easy. And so we just flew in. And, uh, you know, we, then we, there wasn't any fire at the time, so we're down there. The crew jumps out to try and get the bodies out. But they were kind of, the helo was turned, and they were kind of pinned under it. They were only get, able to get one body out. We got that in the helo. In the meantime, we started taking fire from the tree line. And that's when I was shooting the M16 at the tree line. And then we, we got enough, then we, we got the body in, and then we just, then some cobras came because they had mm-hmm. heard about the coordinates. <clears throat> And then they covered us as we came out. Let me ask you, John, we're on the fly here. Two guys from Debt One, we were down to one bird because every 100 hours we had to get a new aircraft from maintenance. The major maintenance done in Bentui. So we would do the oil changes and filter changes and so forth, but they did all the heavy stuff. But two guys from Debt One were Mike Legal, I'll give him, and Rich mm-hmm. Lambert. They came up and they got shot down that day too. Were they already shot down when you got there, or you got there first, probably, didn't you? I think we got there first. You got there first. Yes. They came in, scrambled up, went in, and they had a gunship. And uh, the bad guys, I think, had a fifty-one caliber, mm. and they were knocking them out of the air. It was like a setup. It was like an ambush because once the first one come down, they know we're going to try and come and get people out. So they kind of. You were lucky. You guys weren't shut yes, down. Yeah, very lucky. When. But, uh, 
when when you're flying and, and and Carl, you mentioned that you can't even remember operations where you didn't take fire. How often is your aircraft getting hit? You know, it's, you post flight really heavily when you get back, and you can, you know, it, when you're when you're a new guy, you can't hear th- certain things, but when you're got experience, you can hear gunfire. You can hear it from a, from 800 feet. You can hear it. You can dang sure hear it when you're breaking off target at 200 feet, but uh, 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 back on. But anyway, the bottom line is is that uh, uh, we would get back on post flight, and uh, more often than not, um, and we. By the way, we fu- we found uh, we would find uh, the seals would bring in intel stuff, and there would be a drawing of a helicopter, and in Vietnamese telling the bad guys where to aim mm. so they could hit the aircraft. Because most of the time, they'd shoot at us and hit the tail section. Most, all of my hits, not all of them, but most of them were aft of the cabin. Mm. There were some in the cabin, and they were uncomfortable. And sometimes, I know John got a Purple Heart, and he can tell that story. And I got one, Earl got one. I mean, it's no big deal. I mean, you get it because you got shot, and it's not nothing necessarily heroic. People think a big a Purple Heart's a big deal. It's not a big deal. Uh, I'd give mine to anybody who wants it if yes. I can have the whole back, period. But So since you brought the topic up, uh, this is something <laughs> yeah, about Yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about uh, your Carl Purple Hearts. Carl and I talk about this all the time. <laughs> and uh, so we, Carl was on debt six at that point, and we were out, and we, that one only had one of their birds. They had one in maintenance, so... We went down to debt one and we formed a three plane formation. And so I was a pilot of one, Carl was a pilot of one, this Earl shot was a pilot of the third. So we went out, took some fire, found a target. And I'm not sure who was first one in. I think me. You he so forgot to add it was a heavy fire team and I was a fire team leader. So Carl Those two guys were doing everything I asked them to do most okay. of the time. So Carl's the first <laughs> So heavy so fire team means you got three birds? Three, three birds. birds. Okay. So Carl's the first one in. And, and you're going Earl, in to do what? What are you going in to do? We're putting a strike, strike in. Putting a strike in. So Carl's... When you say putting a strike in, meaning you're going to lay fire down yeah, onto... rockets. Yeah. Is, there, is it close air support necessarily, or is it what is some the SEAL team? We, we had target. just taken some ground fire, and we're going to put it out, basically. It. And so you're, you're rolling in, and then Carl was the first one in. Earl was the second one in. So Carl peels off, and Earl's putting down fire. So as he's peeling off, that's when the plane's supposed to be put. The second plane's supposed to put down on the fire. So Earl put down the fire. By that time, Carl's supposed to come around. Then when Earl comes off the target, I'm putting fire down. I came off the target, and that's when I got hit. (laughs) And so so we argued today. (laughs) I said, Carl, you didn't cover me coming off target. And he says, well, you were out of position. I said, I wasn't out of position. You were out of position. I and so I, so I got hit. So where did you get hit? I got hit in the foot. So the round came up and knocked the tips of my two toe, toes off, tips of my toes off on my right foot. And then you saw the scramble of sea wolves. My gunner that day was He got Terry hit at the Perrington same time. Kid. He was, was what? Kid uh, and the scramble of sea wolves at the mm-hmm. end where the round came up, cut his mic cord came out, dotted his helmet, and dotted the eye on Kid written on the back of his helmet. It was in the movie. It was yeah. in the movie. Yeah. And it cut the back then, of his neck like he cut it with yeah, a knife. Just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and How's he that? Told, so he gets hit. I look back, and I'm trying to call him, and he's not responding. I look back, and all I see is blood. I go, oh, geez. He gives me a thumbs up, a big smile, and starts shooting again. <laughs> and the round just you know, cut the mic cord, 
just grazed the back of his neck. And, of course, when you cut your neck or head, it just bleeds like crazy. <laughs> and then uh, so then we go back, land. Carl comes over, picks me up, and carries me into the infirmary. <laughs> the I real story? Say, Should we hear the real story? story? <laughs> well, that's so. And to this day, we argue who's out of position, but we're the best of friends. <laughs> it's interesting. So, that's like in a, in a SEAL platoon, that's – that's one of the basic maneuvers we do. It's like one person shooting. As that person rolls out, there's someone that's picking up fire right behind right. him. As that person rolls out, there's someone picking yeah, up exactly, a fire right yeah, here. Exactly. That's the way it's supposed to be, Carl. In, in that's a, the way it's <laughs> supposed to be. In a racetrack Thank pattern. You, <laughs> in a racetrack pattern. This veteran at that time, I probably had 800 missions and fire. It barely knows how to pre-flight. Yet he's in position and I'm not. But what's funny is we got back and and I didn't know that, that Purrington was wounded. And we got back and landed, and uh, John was, oh, oh. I thought, my God, he's he probably has a body shot. Check his body. Check blood and I couldn't find any blood anywhere. I'm looking, nothing. Not he's dry. I'm thinking, I'm patting him down, and I picked him up. <laughs> and gently carried him 600 yards down the infirmary the length of the base. He's moaning the whole way. Meantime, Purrington's bleeding, and he's walking, chatting the whole time. But John's, John's moaning. I thought, he must have a brain wound I can't see or something. <laughs> and, and so, so, this is what I put up all the time. <laughs> and we get down there, he takes his boot off, and, ah, ah, and he shot in the big toe. So Earl calls you. little toes. Earl so. calls you. Earl calls him Nine Toes. That's his name. (laughs) So then I get medevaced up to Bentui to the third surge, which is the Army Hospital up Mm -hmm. there. And obviously I wasn't that badly wounded. And they put me in the back room. And uh, that night everybody came over to see me. I had a little nightstand table. I must have had 30 uh, scotch and waters on that little (laughs) table because everybody brought me a drink. Did you save your boots, the boots? I do, I do. And I was very lucky. The doctor said because it came, it was, he had steel toe boots, but it came up through the bottom, and he said it just missed a steel toe. If it hit the steel toe, that would ricochet around and uh, taken all your toes out. John has the boot but, on a nice little stand in, in his living room. He's in there where there's a sprinkler around it and music and so forth. <laughs> He's got a plaque there. <laughs> so, but I do, and I have actually I have the round that came up. Okay, well, he's where's got the round. round from? He's got well, the round. <laughs> so it came up, went through my foot, and then hit me on the side of the leg. And I didn't you know you can only feel one pain at a time. And well, hit me on the side of the leg. And when I was, I was getting out of the helo, I saw this round down by the collective, so I picked it up and put it in my pocket. It was uh, Two days later, I was getting out of bed, and I bumped my knee. And I go, geez, that really hurts. And I had a big welt about this big around <laughs> on the inside of my thigh there. And so you can only feel one pain. I was just feeling my toes at the time. A couple of days later, I was feeling the other one. But that was around. Who was the thing. CO then? Oh, that, so it was a change of command. That day I got shot was a change of command. And Captain Bergstrom was taking over from Captain Twight. And the tradition was that the first guy that got shot, the CO had to buy him a bottle of scotch. <laughs> so he did so it for a bottle of scotch. So there was a, we had an officer's meeting, I don't know. <laughs> A month later or something like that, and sure enough, he gave me a bottle of scotch. <laughs> Brought it back to that and shared it with the, with the team. Was it cheap? <laughs> I can't remember. I don't know. It was <laughs> Drewers or something like that. So. <laughs> so what about you, Carl? When did you get shot? What, what happened to you? Oh, Earl and I were together, and we just, we just uh, it was minor. It was minor stuff, but I bled a lot. I was, uh, 
we took a round through the cockpit. What was it, what was the operation? You know, actually, we were just on a patrol. We weren't actually even put in a strike. You could take a round randomly, and it happened one time when we were taking a, a, a platoon to insert them. The radioman got shot on the way in hmm. with one of Richard's guys, Tom Richard's guys. But we just took a random round, as I recall, and uh, and Earl and I took – both took flack in the face where it bounced off of the center divider and the windscreen, so we got glass in our face and metal in our face, and it looked pretty bad until we shaved the beard, and it actually wasn't bad at all. It was minor. So I didn't limp anywhere. I didn't have to be carried down to third, to third search, search. Nobody bought me booze at all. Nobody cared, you know, and I didn't care. But when they treat you and you're wounded and they treat you and they – stitch you or whatever, you get a Purple Heart. That's what uh, the Honorable Joan yeah, Carey figured out. Yeah. It hurt more getting sewn up than it did getting shot. It's because <laughs> they had to pull the skin around my toes and stuff. And, and I had to soak my foot for about a week to make sure there's no infection and everything. We gave him tons of grief over that, and we love John. He's a great guy, one of the best guys I know, and a gentleman. I don't have many guys I can call gentlemen that I know, at least not seawolves. But anyway. <laughs> but I was back flying in two weeks. And at what point, so at what point did you guys link up and start, were you, were you at the same debt? Was that debt <laughs> six, you said? Yes. And what caused so, that? What caused you two to, be, to start working together? What had happened? Well, I, I was a very experienced fire team leader. And what they do is they, when you first get to HAL 3 in those days, you had a month or two in the home guard, and you kind of transitioned. You already transitioned to the H1 because you flew the H1 in flight school. But... You transition to the mission and build your time, get to know the area of operations. You fly to every debt, taking mail and parts and people. And uh, in that month or two, you do that. Mm-hmm. And then you're a detachment, and you make aircraft commander, and then you make fire team leader. And after a period of time, before you go home, they bring you back in. You fly at home guard again for a couple of months as the aircraft commander, like Bill Belch did for you right. when you were when you went to VC Lake. And so... The executive officer was one to bring me back to do that. And I said, it was March. And I said, hey, I got two months, March and April. I, I don't want to go back. I, I'm just getting good at this. Leave me alone. And so I whined and whined and whined. And finally, he demoted me. He took me to, <clears throat> took me to death six. <clears throat> Pardon me. So they didn't have a fire team leader. Uh, one had got killed. And one had... Uh, we the end of his tour, and so um, they had some really, really good aircraft commanders. And you, you were a co-pilot when I first got there, I think, and you became maybe you were an aircraft commander. I was an aircraft commander. Oh, you okay? Well, there were there were three or four or five good guys, and I'll name them: John Farr, John Barnes, uh, Mac Emman, Paul Waters. Who did I miss? <clears throat> That's it. Hey, Mac Emman. Did I miss you, Mac? No, you said Mac. And uh, super guys. And the XO said, go get those. Those guys are all just, they need a little leadership. They need a little experience. And uh, go do it. If you got any, you know, the ONC, not so much. <laughs> he had a bad case of lieutenant commander, which is do nothing. I, I tried to figure out when I went through the Navy, I tried to avoid lieutenant commander. If I could go from lieutenant to commander, I'd have been very happy. Uh, but... 
anyway, so I sort of had to be me and a little put my chin out and chest out and had these these great guys that uh, took about uh, 30 minutes to fire up and get going, and all of a sudden we were flying all day every day like we're supposed to, not sitting back at the boat waiting for meals. And then what's on at the movie? We don't give a damn what's on the movie. We're going to fly it, period. That's what you do. That's how you know your AO. That's how you support the people out there in the boats. And that's how it happens. If somebody gets shot down, you're right there on the spot. That's what we do. Are you guys flying the same helicopter all the time? Do you have a particular one or you just whichever one's ready? Well, whichever one's ready and able to fly. So you got them on debt. The two you have on debt, you're flying those, Mm -hmm. obviously. And then you have to take up once a month or so many hours to do the annual maintenance on it, then get another one back. How much difference is there between, you know, this one and that one? None. You know, physically flying, they're all the same, just like driving a car. Mm -hmm. You you know what to do. They're all... all You know, I was in a training squadron with Earl and BT-3 after our helicopter. Mm -hmm. We went back fixed wing for a while. And I remember guys fighting over an aircraft that was smoother and... It was a Bravo model instead of a charter model, and it's faster. And I mean, who gives a crap? We just go fly, you know. We, we, yeah. And that's what we did. We didn't. We didn't have our name on the aircraft. That's Top Gun crap, you know. <laughs> we didn't put you. I, you know, I. I'll tell a joke. I, I when I became maintenance officer VT three, I was a boot lieutenant commander, unfortunately, and <laughs> and we had four hundred airplanes, and we were starting to downsize, taking these old charter models that were made for carrier landings, and they were all beat up from hard landings. And they were towing them over and scrapping them. Well, my assistant maintenance officer is a guy named Russ Combs, great guy, and he's he's boss. You want me? you're my new boss here. You want me to put your name on one of these airplanes? I said, you put my name on one of those airplanes, Combs, and I will break every bone in your body. Don't you do it? <laughs> well, so one day I get down, I come back from a flight, and he says, uh, "I got your plane parked up in front, sir. Did you see it?" And I says, "Where?" I go out and all the line guys are around laughing. He took one of those old Charlie Miles, scraped off the exhaust, painted Lieutenant Commander C.D. Nelson rotor head on it, and old Charlie Miles right there in front, and it was a big ha-ha. And so they're going to take it to main side and just scrap it anyway, so who cares? Well, pretty soon I get a phone call from the guy. said, hey, I was just in the Navy Leaf Museum, and your airplane's in there. They took that plane just at random – and reworked that Charlie model and put it in the museum, and they left my name on it. The museum down in Pensacola? Yeah, and, but I think it's gone. I couldn't find it last time, and thank God for that. But uh, anyway, no, we didn't, want, we didn't care what we flew. We were going flying. They're all the same. <laughs> Let Tom Cruise get his name on something. <laughs> we did have nicknames for each other, and I can't tell you John's real nickname because <laughs> his family's going to see this. <laughs> I was Seawolf 6 so. <laughs> There you go. That sounds like the Fiji version. <laughs> so you talk about the last weeks in the, the squadron, and uh, people would just come up and kind of chill out the last two weeks before they left. And I actually flew the last two weeks that I was in the squadron. The CIA had sold something on the black market, and they this was down in the human force. It was some kind of communication center in the human force, and they couldn't quite figure out what it was, what it was or where it was. So they sold something on the black market. They wouldn't tell us what it was, but they knew it would end up to this headquarter area. And so they had a, they picked a, a signal or a, a frequency that wasn't being used by any other friendlies in the area, 
put that in a homing device, and we were to follow it. And we did this for 10 days, and then this, it went on a side pen. It just goes slow, it'd go a couple hundred miles, and spend the night, go a little further, spend the night. And it finally got to an area, oh, we were getting a stray signal. We never got a real strong signal. So we talked, and it says, one night we just followed the signal back, and it flew over this church, and the needle just did a 180. So we went back, told the SEALs about this, and they went and raided that church, and they found a huge communication center in the basement of the church. Mm-hmm. So once they knocked that out, we had this real strong signal. So we flew it, and we said, I hope this guy gets the place before I have to leave country. So the last day I was in country, we finally decided, well, this is, it hadn't moved for three or four days, and it must be the place. It wasn't exactly where they thought it was, but it must be the place. So we f- were to fly in, throw out smokes, and they had a couple flights of F-4s off the coast. So we went in 100 feet, throw the smokes out, pull back, and that was the best air show I ever seen in my life. And the F-4s came in and just bombed, bombed the place. And so then I flew back to Bentui, literally jumped out of one helo. They had my bag packed in another helo, jumped in another helo, flew to Saigon. The next day I flew home. So I flew a mission my last day in country. When you guys were there, you know, like um, when we, like my generation looks looks at the Vietnam War and the late 60s, early 70s, you know, it's all this uh, protesters and hippies and and controversy about being in Vietnam. How much of that stuff did you guys actually experience or think about when you were over there? I didn't think about it at all. Not at all. I was, we're doing our job, doing our mission. We didn't think about what's going on back in the States, to be honest with you, at least for my part. Mm-hmm. I remember going to R&R, and I didn't go to R&R until like in my 11th month. I, want, I didn't want to miss out on the flying. That's terrible. I'm awful flight hog. That's what they used to call me. <laughs> and that was a nice name they called me. But we got, I remember we flying over to Honolulu, going to meet my wife, my then wife then. She liked me then. And uh, see, girls, I mentioned your mom. And so um, uh, guys were all chatty and all excited, and we get on this old bus, and we're going. They're taking us to Fort Jerusi there on, on Waikiki, and all the women are all lined up. And as we drive through Alamoano Drive past the park and everything as we're going to Fort Jerusi, you could hear a pin drop on that bus. All that chatter all of a sudden died, and guys were all agape because women weren't wearing bras. <laughs> I, we'd never seen that. And men had a ponytail longer than mine. And they looked funny. They had beards, and they wore funny tie-dyed type stuff I'd never seen. So in 10 months, I didn't recognize mm-hmm. Where I, I honestly, I was in shock, and I also remember, I don't know what the hell I was doing, but we went to a movie in Honolulu one of the times, and it was the movie version of Mash. Okay. And I was so offended by the disrespect for officers in the military, I got up and walked out in about ten minutes. Wouldn't stay. It's funny how mm-hmm. you know so offended, and 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 then when you mention up. I remember going in, and this is 1970, going in, leaving, and saying goodbye to people, and they're all gung-ho, rah-rah. But when I came back, same guys were, was it really bad? 
No. Oh, gee, kill babies over there? No. But some of that stuff. And I even 50 years later in my living room, one of my relatives asked, told me, gee, Carl, I didn't know you were in Vietnam. I said, yeah. Oh, well, were you, what she used term? What term did she use? Made a derogatory term, she said. And I, whatever it was, were you disappointed or were you ashamed or whatever she said? I said, no. Matter of fact, I wasn't. My son-in-law's giving me the cut sign because it's his <laughs> stepmom, and he doesn't want me to blow her away with, with my fire and fury. But I didn't. I restrained. And I, and I said, matter of fact, I don't know anybody that I serve with who feels that way. Matter of fact, and this is interesting, guy, friends of mine that didn't serve and didn't go to Vietnam, I've yet to meet one and talk to one who's not sorry they didn't. Mm-hmm. And I've yet to meet one who served that was sorry they did. So that's my little world, I mm-hmm. guess. That's the people I hang around. I hang yeah. around mostly good people. So, <laughs> Did you see anything like that, like that John? Well, no, when I came home, uh, I was welcomed home because you know, from a family perspective, I got to the house and you know, my parents picked me up at the airport and I was in uniform. Got back to the house and they had a sign. Uh, it was an eight by four board, particle board. They had written on it, welcome home. And they had, my sister had painted, and she was an artist, the Seawolf signia on this, uh, uh, was an eight by, eight by four foot board. And so I was, it was sit up in the front yard, had it in the front yard, up, welcome home, John. So, uh, and my, of course, my, my dad being in the Army and mm-hmm. his history was very supportive of that. But I did have one incident where they had me go on some recruit, recruiting duty when I first came back for about two months, and I had to go down to the University of Illinois. And we were down there for a couple of days doing some recruiting duty. Not that we got a lot of people signed up or anything, but I went to put my pants on one morning, the, the legs on my pants just fell off. So when I was there, apparently somebody had thrown some acid or something on my uniform. And that, that was the only incident I, I had with, with that. But other than not recruiting very well or getting a lot of people into the Navy at that time. Well, what about, uh, you know, it's a question that comes up a lot. And I'm uh, working with draftees. And from what I've, when I've talked to Vietnam vets and when I read about them, the the common thread is that people that were people that were good leaders and took care of their men, they w- would either not know who the draftees were because they just they just were good, um, or they liked the draftees and could tell who they were, but they had no issues with them because the draftees would say they, they kind of had to step up and and the draftees say I don't like the way we're doing this and say well how do you want to do it and they would kind of engage them into the into the planning and in, get, uh, listen to their input. And then you you can read some negative opinions of the draftees when you get someone that's you know it's almost like an excuse. Well, the draftees didn't want to do what they needed to do. What did you guys did you guys notice any difference between draftees and 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 guys that were uh, I guess for lack of a better term lifers? I don't think I did. Uh, the, I think if you were drafted in, it was uh, maybe it's specific for the Navy. Mm-hmm. I think it may, it may be a different situation because most people that are drafted went into the Army. Mm-hmm. 
they were, and I think the people that ended up in the Navy were more volunteers, volunteers. and wanted to be in the Navy. If they're going to pick a service, I want to be in the Navy or the Air Force. I don't want to necessarily be in the Army. Got it. If they're sea wolves, they volunteer, and they yeah. volunteer to be sea wolves. Yes. I, I read a book one time. I had to give a speech. I was asked to get, reluctantly, of course, I did to give a speech on Memorial Day. You had to come out of your shell for that. Yeah, I did for that. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, there's a cemetery in a little town of Gridley, California, up north of Sacramento, about an hour, and they've got a really a, a mini Arlington in the back. And I was really overcome. It was neat. Didn't know this, but I don't know how they know. But supposedly, the first sailor killed in the Pearl Harbor attack was from. Gridley, California. Hmm. Now, I don't know how they decided who got killed first, that conflagration, but they did. And so they built it around that, and they have a celebration every year. Well, I met the manager because a friend of mine was on the board of directors. I thought, the board of directors of a cemetery? What do you do, fight over spots? Or, I mean, what do you need a board for that for? A lottery for a plot, plot or Anyway, and I met her, nice lady, gauging. She says, you know, you served. And I said, well, yeah, I did. And she says, we need a speaker. This was like November, and I said, when? She says, oh, it may, uh, Memorial Day. I went, yeah, I mean, I'm busy. I was farming those days. I was raising olives for olive oil. 500 acres, that's how to stick your toe in the water, your good toe. And so <laughs> so I got, I got this I got this thing, oh, God, I'm, how long do you need to talk? She said, whatever you want. I said, realistically. She said, 20 minutes. I said, okay. And I said, do uh, you want to read the speech before I give it? Because, you know, I don't want to be cut. No, she says, whatever you want. So I started reading books and kind of going through stuff, and I read a book that was pretty neat and well, it was well um, documented and well referenced at, at all the pages, and, and it was written by a guy named B.G. Burkett, and the book is called uh, Stolen Valor, and about guys who pretend to be a rank they're not, or pretend they served and they didn't. And uh, it mentioned our friend, uh, former senator and secretary of state, John Kerry, and other people like that. And it was really interesting book because I learned a lot. And what I learned was that if I ask you what percentage of men volunteered for Vietnam, what would you say, John? About ten percent, seventy-six percent, according to this research. Okay. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, a big number, and a big number. Not only volunteered, but 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 you know, it was a lot of shocking things and about drugs and you know, people say, "Gee, you're in Vietnam, you must have had a problem with drugs." I didn't smell marijuana until I was at a John Denver concert in 1975. I had no. I mean, if somebody did drugs like that, I swear I would have known. We were close. I, we live side by side. We're like a family. We'd have known. I'll agree with that. I, I had no, none of the enlisted, nobody did drugs. I never saw any of that in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Mm. Might have been some of those guys chasing women with buying them teas in Saigon. I don't know. But we didn't have any women to chase where I was. And uh, just a bunch of butt ugly guys. So and, there you and go. I think they maybe part of that is because of the squadron we're in. You know, it's a different level. You're in the Navy, the training, and. And people who were selected to go, you know, were just quality people, and they weren't weren't into those things. Well, so, it, the th- gun, the country changed, Jock, because Jock, because that day I remember, 
my opening line of my speech, on, and, and by the way, I walked, <laughs> I went to, thank God I put a suit on, but I went to give that speech on Memorial Day in Gridley, 2005, I think was it, yeah. I, could, I had my daughters drop me off, and I said, I got to walk and do this thing, you don't have to stay, and and I walked past this big hedge and this big mini Arlington. They had 500 people in there. And they had every Miss whatever county singing a song. And they had a flyover from, from the air base in Sacramento. And they had even had a guy from World War I who could barely walk in his uniform. And, uh, I mean, and they had an, had an honor, honor guard there. And she called, it a, she called it a firing squad, but it is an honor guard. <laughs> and so... Um, and I remember my opening line, and I'll end with that, was the last battle of the Vietnam War was fought and won by the swift boat veterans against John Kerry. And people got on their feet and clapped. That's what kind of crowd I had. How's that for change in the country? Amazing. So that's coming a long way from 1970. Right. That is that is definitely heading back in the other direction for sure. You know, before we, uh, I, I know I opened talking about that operation where you were, where Carl, you were you were supporting uh, Zulu platoon. What other what what do you remember about that day? I mean, that had to be sort of. It sounds like that had to be one of the more, um, you know, more, I guess, dramatic operations that you supported. We had some, we had with the SEAL teams, we had some exciting ones. Most of them were at night, but that was a broad daylight one. And when uh, the ONC of Zulu came to me the night before, and we sat down and you mentioned about communication, we, we, lived, we lived within 50, 75 yards of those guys. And so, yeah, we'd pre-brief the night before and talk about, you know, where they're going. And most of the time, you know, they didn't, wasn't daylight, it was a night op, and we would stand ready to scramble if they got in trouble, and, but this was going to be a daylight op, and he had intelligence about some supplies or equipment or ammo or something that was north of our, of our base, probably, you know, maybe 50 clicks, I'm not sure, 20 clicks, and uh, we briefed it and what he was going to do, and he had a had a Sea Lord slick coming. Ed Dyer was flying that, as you mentioned. And uh, Ed was a former fire team leader up at Det 9, well experienced, understood fire team tactics and so forth. And uh, so uh, we briefed it and so forth, and we took off. And uh, and uh, my co pilot, my, my uh, co pilot was Earl, and he was well experienced, ready. Earl was ready to be. I think he was about this far from aircraft commander and obviously was a very successful fire team leader, retired as a Navy captain, hell of a guy. And, uh, but, our, but my wingman, um, to go unnamed, was questionable. Um, but we put him with a, new, with a newer co-pilot who was a pretty solid guy. So we always tried to put a solid co-pilot with a pilot. Maybe not all pilots are aces of the bases like John, but some guys, there are some guys who are good guys, but they, you know, God didn't give them those skills. So that's a fact. So, so I knew my wingman was questionable. I, we briefed off the op and what we we're going to do. We we're going to escort the slick in and, and, um, and I would, I would lead the, we'd lead it into the LZ, into the landing zone. We'd, I'd lead it in and I decided it was going to be a, uh, it was going to be a break left because I wanted the right door, and was Mike Dobson, gunner to be the outside of the circle. We would go down to about 
100 feet or less and circle low orbit while the seals exit the slick and cover them. We literally lay cover fire down, not wait for any fire. And, uh, and then once they're all out and clear and in position, and the slick wanted to pull a pitch and he would call and warn me, we would escort him out. I'd lead him out. Other, the wing would follow him out. Well, as I made my turn, and I'm looking across Earl. I made a, I made a left-hand turn, so I'm looking across my co-pilot, and I'm saying, Earl, do you see Sea Wolf, whatever his number was? I know his number, but I'm not saying it. No. Call him. Stay on the radio. Find him. Meantime, I got a SEAL team on the ground. I got to escort a slick out, and my wingman's missing. So. Had to be shot down or had a mechanical failure or something, but I ended up trying to raise him. Earl's trying to raise him. I'm communicating with Dyer. We get Dyer out. We get him, we get him over to a safety area at altitude where he could orbit and wait until we need him because they got to come out sometime. So, meantime, we're calling for my wingman. He's not answering. No answer. Can't find him. Well, then I get a call from Tom Richards, and Tom's on the ground, and he said, um, when you're flying over here, did you did you see, you know, after you put your strike in, you want to put a strike in, I put a strike in, single ship, which is against squadron policy, do single, sh- single ship strikes mm-hmm. because, you know, but I had no choice, obviously, that guy's on the ground, and they were taking fire. We were taking fire on the way in and on the way out. So it was pretty, they were, they were not happy folks on the ground there, the bad guys. So um, Tom asked, you know, do you see anybody? I said, after I put the strike in, I said, yeah, I got, a, I got 10, 12 guys dead there. And we, and uh, what else did you see? And I says, there was a big dike. They were on, they were on the, the dikes were kind of running uh, east-west, and they were flooded. They were little dikes, and there was a great big dike, and beyond that, a tree line. And that's where the fire was coming from, was from behind the big dike and the tree line. Well, we knocked out that big dike pretty quickly. But the tree line, we had a hard time stopping the fire, and we we laced it pretty good. I mean, Earl waltzed the minigun up and down there many times. Uh, but I'm I'm starting to get concerned about conserving my ammo and making sure making sure it counts. And we got to find my. But I couldn't worry about those four guys that were my trail ship. I lost them, but I had six seals on the ground, my own four guys, and four guys on the other airplane of Dyers. So, you know, we got 14 guys I got to worry about of my own before I worry about four more. And all of a sudden, uh, and Tom and I were talking, and all of a sudden, uh, they started taking heavy fire, and, and I, uh, I didn't know who it was, but it was Grant Telford that went down. He took a round in one leg, and it went up and missed, and missed the family jewels and went down the other leg. I mean, you may have heard about that, and he, and, and he survived it. No... No femoral artery puncture. I mean, he could have been gone. And, they, and and those wounds, there was a guy shot in the chest. I'm not sure which guy. There was a guy shot in the lower abdomen. Uh, Tom was hitting the hand and just just it disabled his weapon. And uh, and I'm talking to Tom, and it was obvious to me. I'm I'm sitting there low level. I'm doing pedal turns. Literally, the aircraft, and you know what happens when you're going slow. You get retreating blade stall. It's called, and the aircraft starts kind of bucking. But I did that because I wanted to have a flat profile on the aircraft 
so that my right door and my left door and Earl could shoot because we needed every weapon firing. Meantime, it, it looks like, you know, and before Tom even asked for extraction, I could see that they were in extremis, absolutely, more than I'd ever seen on any mission. Guys in trouble, you know. How and many guys total did they have on the ground? They had six. And so that was the, the slick carried in all other, all the six seals in one yeah. bird. And, and, I, and I, in my haste, I mentioned there, I forgot the first part of the story. On the way in, I'm in front, Ed's in the middle, and my trail ship's behind, and we're transiting up, and about 10 clicks short of the LZ, the kid sitting on the, I think it was the right side of the aircraft, got hit in the shoulder, radioman got hit in the right shoulder. So, and that happens when you're flying in a hostile area. So we turned around and flew back. We went back, landed, Got the kids some medical help, and Tom wasn't. Even, Tom Richards wasn't even part of the operation. And Telfer said, "Let's go back." I said, "Okay, I'll cover you." And he says, "And Richard says I'll go." And and I know that a couple of guys, uh, and I'm not sure. I, I won't use their names, but a couple of other seals said, "Don't," but they wanted to go. So Tom hops in, and off we went. But. The story got kind of muffled over 50 years because we never got to debrief the op. The guys got wounded, went to third surge, went home. They were at the end of their tour. Most of them had already packed up all their stuff except for their favorite weapon. So we never debriefed it, ever. So come back to the a mission here. We got loaded, got Tom on board, and off we went back again. Now, the story over the years, I remember hearing from other SEALs, well, you guys went to the LZ and then then you went back to the same LZ. That's why they got hit. That's not true. It didn't happen that way. We did not even get to the LZ the first time. We didn't even make an approach to it because, again, we just got hit transiting the area. So we went back, inserted. They got in place. I could see I'm coming back to the extremist part. And, uh, and I called Ed in, and Ed was already on his way in. And thank God that Ed was a former fire team leader. He knew the story. He knew, he knew how to fly. He had a slick with a lot of power. And uh, because I was about a quarter of an inch from landing and picking him up myself. Now, that would have been the last possible situation because, as you all know, John, on a hot day, a sea wolf loaded with armament, the probability you're putting six people in and taking off is – one percent, if that, if you could even get airborne at all. And uh, you have to understand that these UH-1 Bravos were eight, 9,000-pound airplanes, and we had them loaded with fuel and loaded with armament and four people in it. And on a hot day, we could sometimes we couldn't even hover. We had to take off, skip along. Before we got translational lift, we had to be into the wind and very careful and be smooth. We would say, I'd say to my co-pilot, you want to hold this collective and this stick like it's a beautiful woman. You don't want to offend her. You don't want to be rough. You want to be gentle. And just ease this. Think it off the ground is what I would say. Don't pull the pitch. Think it up. And it'll get up. Okay. And then we did. Yep. And sometimes you, you, you hear the RPM start going down at 6,000. Red light comes on. And you get an oral, 
<laughs> and then you've got to be kicking out boxes of ammo in the river, throwing out your rocket pods and hoping you don't crash. I never did. Did you? Nope. You had some close well, calls? Well, on the LSTs, you know, the same thing. You could barely hover, would get it over the edge, and then you would dive for the water to get airspeed. Hope you got the airspeed before you got to the water. And use the water to push off the air yeah, to get right. translational uh, lift. And so we were that heavy, so I thought, crap. You know, and I, my guys knew we, we may be dumping rockets to the bad guys, and a lot of we may need to get these people. We'll wait. Well, Ed came in, he got them all. Uh, I didn't see the kid hanging on to the kid, basically. I was busy. We were putting fire in. But uh, thank God for Tom Richards on that flight. But I did see Tom dragging guys across several levees under fire. And the two guys that weren't wounded did a heck of a job laying down fire. And Tom will tell you to cover the extraction of those wounded guys. Uh, uh, Grant Telfer is lucky to be here in this world. Mm -hmm. And... Whenever I see Tom Richards, uh, it never fails. He hugs me, which is not all that nice, but <laughs> he thanks me for him being on the green side of grass. Did the same thing at your house last yep, year. Sure did. And and that's uh, that's a and and my my one of my crewmen, Mike Dobson, who was who is a heck of a guy, a stellar, one of the best, and we had some good ones, gunners ever. And he he says. Why didn't we get more awards on that? And I said, well, our reward is that there are six guys that got wounded and they survived and they got families. And most of them, I think all of them, got back on active duty. That's a big award. So my wingman, what happened to my wingman? <clears throat> didn't answer, wouldn't answer. So we're escorting the slick back to the base with wounded people, and that's on my mind. I'm calling to get the ambulance down and to get the, get the guys ready and so forth. And uh, Earl's still calling him on the radio. No response, and all of a sudden, Dobson says, Sir, Seawolf blank blank just joined up on us. He joined up on us. Well, my temperature went to, I don't know, 1,000, and we landed, and... Uh, First of all, we had to get the seals taken care of, and they were, and and you know, and you're kind of coming down from a high after that much adrenaline's going. And I talked to their aircraft commander, and he says, "I don't know what happened. We just got stuck on the ground." And that's that's all I'll say. But supposedly they just went when we were going in low. He just lost it and flew into the ground. And got stuck in the mud and couldn't get out. That's the story I get from the co-pilot's now dead. He passed away and uh, from the crewman. It, it was a sad day for Seawolves because, um, and I reported that, that happening to my XO, not to Seal, but the XO, who I knew pretty well. And uh, nothing was done. Mm -hmm. Pretty embarrassing. If, if, if one of those, I promised the aircraft commander that was my trail ship, that if one of those seals didn't make it, he he wasn't going to make it either, and I meant it. But they all made it, so that's kind of a story that hasn't been told. Mm -hmm. And when they, when Mike Slattery wrote the wrote the uh, 
award recommendation, and I was talking to Gordy Peterson, who was also a Seawolf for a while, debt one and debt two. And Gordy says, you mean he abandoned you in the face of the enemy? And I said, damn sure did. Now, again, the guy was suspect. We certainly didn't think he would do that. Uh, so I'm conflicted by that. One, I want to kill the guy still. On the other hand, uh, everybody made it out. Everybody did their job. My four guys, Tom Clavon's passed on. Uh, Mike Dobson, I just saw last week, Earl shot. I just talked to him a few days ago. He's close to us. Uh, really good guy. Uh, on 100% oxygen, by the way, COPD problems, but what a guy. Yep. He's probably going to outlive us both, John. <laughs> and, and you and I talked, and I know you're still connected to Tom Richards, who, you know, as I mentioned, ha- played a role in changing my life for me. And uh, hopefully we can talk to him and I can get him out here to sit down in this room, and that would be just an honor to be able to do that. Tom's changed a lot of lives. One time he was speaking at a Seawolf convention in 2004. <clears throat> and somebody, is the camera on me now? Yeah. Oh. And so somebody says, It's been Admiral, on you for two hours. Admiral, show me your wound. He goes, <laughs> His finger. He got shot in the finger. But what makes it clever like this, you know? Uh, Tom changed a lot of life. He's one of the, again, one of the bravest, nicest guys I know. And uh, it's all because of Jackie, I'm sure, not my, not Tom. And uh, just a good guy uh, and happy he's a friend of mine and happy he's there. Any other, uh, John, any operations that stick out in your mind as sort of the, the pinnacle of, of your tour over there? I think the one that when Ben Tui got hit, or, or uh, San and Doc, mm. That one, that was the big one. That flew all night long, you know. We were up for like 12 hours just putting strike after strike after strike in. So you're, yeah. so you're sitting there, and the base starts to get attacked. And is it, is it the first call? Is that a contingency plan that you all have? Hey, if we start getting attacked, we're going to get these birds out of here? Well, the, the first reaction was to get to the bunker, just so, okay. you know, then you know, assess the situation. And then there was that lull, and I said, now's the time to go. And we, we just ran out to the helos and hopped in and took off. And how many guys were on base defending the base? Or did everyone get in either helicopters or swift boats and get out of there? Well, there was, the base was, was an open area. There was no perimeter around Debt 6. Hmm. And, uh, and I'm not sure there was a perimeter around the, the, the barges that were on the river. They just had a whole string of barges right there down the river. And it wasn't a big village or anything. Mm-hmm. But uh, we didn't have any perimeter guards around where we were. And we were just a couple hundred yards off from where the, the barges were. So we just got in the bunker, and after we took off, and then we went back because we weren't sure about the rest of the people that were there, the crew, the other pilots. And so, but we found out that they had gotten to the boats and, and got out. How much fuel, how long can you guys fly for in the Huey? When you're loaded out to bear, a couple hours. Yeah, hour and a half. Two. Most it, flights are pretty short, dark, but an hour, hour and a half is a long flight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the twenty-minute fuel light is very accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I had one mission where we came back, and I, we literally the twenty-minute fuel light came on. We went back up to Kamau, which was where Death Three was, and as we as we touched down, the engine shut itself down. We ran out of fuel as we were touching down. <laughs> 
Were so. you flying with me when we had to land and send out for fuel because we ran out? No, and I was, we, no, I was, and we got I heard about that. We literally got an ammo can of fuel. Uh, yeah, well, this is this is in Scramble the Sea Wolves, right? <laughs> yeah. This story. Yeah, and, and tell Mike, us about Mike, that one. Mike Dobson was my crewman again, and we didn't run out of fuel, but I but I landed at Hatien because I was at the end of the 20 minutes. And that light gets bigger and bigger. And at nighttime, it's huge. It's like the sun. At daytime, it's still pretty damn big. What was the mission that you were doing? We were covering SEALs that day, and I don't remember what the Pacific operation was. The the missions all come together. I remember Mike Slattery asked me on the phone one time, uh, how about blah, blah, blah? And I said, you know, they all kind of blend together. It's hard to separate them out. I remember the Zulu one in detail. I I dream about that one and and uh, and thank God about it every night. Not every night, but most nights. Um, but we were we were covering uh, seals and and Mike Dobson could give you more detail. But uh, it, uh, we had to make a call about whether we. We ended up with less fuel than my wingman, and we ended up swapping stations and refueling one time to cover back and forth. But we got, I got so low I couldn't go back. At the time, the SEALs were already in. We were safe. but So you stayed on station to support them. Absolutely. Even though you were low on fuel, and you, you had enough fuel just to get them and then make it to a rice paddy somewhere. Basically, well, it was an old place <laughs> called Hatien. There, was there wasn't no fuel there, and there wasn't really a landing pad there. It was a rice paddy near a little town, yes. <clears throat> and so we set a perimeter up, and we sent out for fuel. <laughs> and by sending out, sending out for fuel, you you grabbed ammo cans, ammo cans, and, and pulled fuel from the other bird. <clears throat> uh, yeah, and and uh, <laughs> it's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> you think about it. how can you let yourself run out of fuel? Well, sometimes you don't have. And you know the big thing is contamination. You worry about getting fuel contaminated, mm-hmm. and but it worked out okay. We made it. But that was. Uh, it takes Mike Dobson to tell the story. He can tell it without any alcohol. He's a better storyteller than I am. Mission focused, that's for sure. So then when you guys get home from Vietnam, what, what happens with your careers at this point? Because whoever was counseling you, Carl, that told you the rest of the Navy ain't like this, he was definitely right. I know I had some new guys that were on their first deployment when I was in the Battle of, Ma- uh, the Battle of Ramadi, and it's it's kind of a corrupting thing to be in this situation where there's very limited bureaucracy. We have total control over what's happening. You're doing the job you always dreamed about. And I remember some of the older, more experienced guys saying, it's not gonna get any better than this. This is the best deployment you're ever gonna do, so enjoy it. And it sounds like you guys got some of that advice, but what was the reality when you got back? How many of us, went, we went from HAL 3, how many went to Lakehurst? Well, I, I what I did is that uh, I wanted to go to Lakehurst, but I had orders to Quonset Point. What, what was Lakehurst? Uh, Lakehurst, New Jersey. Uh, there was a naval air station, and that's where uh, the LAMPS program started. And, and what, uh, what was the LAMPS program all light about? Airborne, light airborne multipurpose systems, and we were they we had helos, the H2s could track submarines. Mm-hmm. And Anti-submarine warfare. warfare. ASW. <laughs> As Denny says, and so what? <laughs> so the detailer was actually in Vietnam, and uh, and Earl and Carl had already left, and they were going to Lakehurst. 
and I had orders to Quonset Point. And so the detailer wanted to go out on a mission, so I put him in the co-pilot seat, and we went out and found some targets and let him shoot the, the minigun and everything. And I told the crew, if you ran the, the miniguns dry, he had to buy the crew a case of beer because it was so hard to re, restring uh-huh. and everything. It was easy to just clip the next one around right. and go. So I told the crew, I'll let him shoot as much as he wants. I'll buy a case of beer if he runs it dry. Well, he ran the miniguns dry, get back, and he says, you know, I'd really like to go to Lakehurst. <laughs> And he says, I can't promise anything, but I'll see what I can do. And about four weeks later, I get my orders and they're to Lakehurst. Beautiful. And then I'm in Lakehurst. (laughs) And and minigun solves a lot of problems on both ends. (laughs) Yes. But I'm in Lakehurst now and I'm walking through the hangar and I see this commander coming the other way and I salute him. And I'm still a JG at the time and he sees my name tag. He's just far. And he calls me over and says, I think you were supposed to be in my squadron. And I said, well, I don't know. They gave me orders to come here, and I'm just following <laughs> orders, sir. <laughs> but so that's how I ended up in Lakehurst. And then that's, you know, and the three of us were still real close and became closer even then. We got to Lakehurst, then, a bunch of HAL 3 guys. Yeah, what yeah. was almost embarrassing was most of us had three, four rows of ribbons. Metal, and yeah. mm-hmm. We didn't know what most of them meant. We just, <laughs> we, we got them. And, all these medals. You know, yeah. somebody asked me, well, where are your write-ups? And uh, I said, I don't know. <laughs> where are your ribbons? I don't know. Where's your log? I know it's in a storage somewhere. But, but we're, we're, we're at this base, and there's a bunch of guys that either dodged the Vietnam or they, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They just didn't get a chance to go. Mm-hmm. But they're on the East Coast. And uh, they were resentful. They were resentful, um, you know, uh, and they were awards someone. His awards were following us. <laughs> there was always quarters, and you yeah. always get another award. And I was like, oh, crap, maybe I should take leave. <laughs> I don't, don't want to get the – and, you know, sour grapes. And, you know, I I show up there, and I got 11, 1,200 hours or whatever, and most of those guys got – haven't even made aircraft commander right. yet. Because we've been flying our butts off, and they've been on a – and most – well. Well, I think the guys from Hell that came back to the squadron like that from Hell 3, we had been in combat. We'd seen a lot. And you mentioned in the book that you've written about you know, tactics and strategy, about filling the void and just taking charge. Mm-hmm. If you see something's not getting done, you got to step in and take command. And I think the guys from Hell 3 stepped up. And they, they did their jobs better than anybody else. We just stepped up and started getting stuff done. Can I can remember at one point I was a night maintenance officer in the squadron. And uh, one and the bird, there was always birds down. But I was night maintenance officer, and one night we got every single aircraft in the squadron was up and ready for flight the next day. And I went in the wardroom and put on the board, it says, all aircraft are ready for flight today. <laughs> And uh, and I think that was a nice accomplishment to have all the birds up. But, but, but I think taking charge yeah. and the, working with yeah. the, the chief and the, the maintenance people and, and the, we worked late hours. We they actually we worked past midnight one time just to get this last bird up so we could have them all up on that next day. That is when I got the Lakers, they had ten birds and one up forever. And our CO was a guy <clears throat> and a nice guy. The first one I had when I was there, Mr. Peanut. I told you about him. Mm-hmm. He looked like the guy on the planter's peanut chart. <laughs> he, 
and I was a line division officer. I mean, I after, I was in charge of nothing but a bunch of guys that were yelling at women and doing. I tried to keep them all under control. High school guys. Well, I really worked on them. We trained and we got pretty damn good. And they looked they looked almost like a troop. Well, there was one bird up, and I had them all trained up, and I'm watching them from the line shack on the end, which is out in the end, the big blimp hanger. And the commander comes out, our CO, and he pre-flights the aircraft, and it passed the pre-flight. What? All right. <laughs> he climbs in, co-pilot climbs in, got through the checklist okay. They plug the power in, start one, start two. All right. Sounds perfect. Everything is good. <laughs> they had the guy out here, blank captain in front, he had the wands, and he's holding the guy short here and so forth. We had a guy who was on the APU there, auxiliary power unit. It's like a like a like a four wheeler, <laughs> and he turns, you know, the and and the CO salutes him. He salutes him, hops back on and drives off, yanks the plug out of the side of the airplane. <laughs> it's down, mm. and I ran and hid. <laughs> <laughs> so when we were flying the H twos. We were assigned to a destroyer, so that we were landing on the back of destroyers, and we were with, you were like the third dead. I was on sixth dead. I went over. We had lost a bird in the med, and I they put an H two and a HC or C five. We flew it over, and there was just the replacement crew. So there was two pilots and a, a crewman, and so we got to sit in the cockpit of the C five, flying across the Atlantic. Hmm. We flew over, and I was sitting in the cockpit, and they got a, a warning fuel light on one of the engines and had to shut it down. If I hadn't been sitting in the thing, I would have never known they'd shut an engine down. We had to land in Madrid, wait for wait, waited a week for a part to finally come. Then we finally got over to Naples, and that's where they unloaded the, uh, the helo. Then that flew on the, the Boeing, and uh, then that flew in, you know, flew in the med doing ASW work. Well, John one, didn't one tell story you. about. Yeah. Tell him what happened. Why you? What you didn't tell him was the crew that you replaced. What? They. The guys you replaced the aircraft. Yeah, they had crashed in the med. Hmm. Lost the entire lost, crew. Lo, lost a, a bird and a crew in the med. We had. That's we it. were. Our, our planes were starting to drop yeah. like flies at that time. Mm -hmm. And he's going over there with another bird. Got to be on your mind, John. No, I wouldn't. I didn't. You know, you don't think about that. You know, you got a job doing you, that you're thinking about doing there, and I was happy to be in the med. And we were flying, you know, working the med. And the only place we really wanted to go to was Greece. And so we were pulling into Greece, dropped anchor, and we were going to go on liberty. All of a sudden, there were some Russian subs coming out of the Adriatic. We had to pick up anchor and go chase them. So we were chasing them across, and we were actually at one point they surfaced all their subs. And we think they were trying to sneak some nuclear subs into the med. Mm -hmm. So they had all the surface ones, the diesels up on, and we were like in perfect formation, the 10 Russian ships, 10 US ships in formation going across the med. All of a sudden, they all their subs went under. Aircraft are flying every which way because we're trying to keep track of them. <laughs> and uh, so we're flying again, but you could never get a, a confirmation of where they were because there was just so much noise in the water mm -hmm. with all the ships and everything. But they're flying around in their helicopters taking a picture of us on our hangars. We're flying around <laughs> taking a picture of them on their hangars and stuff like that. We go all the way across the med, and the Admiral 
from the uh, Russian ship calls up our admiral and says, thanks for the escort across the bed. And they peeled off and went into Alexandria. <laughs> and that's, of course, when we didn't have good relationships with, uh, with Egypt. So, uh, but it was an interesting tour across the bed with the Russian ships, to say the least. And then how long did you guys end up staying in the Navy for? I stayed on, well, I did a tour at uh, Lakehurst. And then uh, that's when I met my wife at the end of my tour. And I got out of the Navy went back and worked for Burroughs. Mm -hmm. So that job was still waiting job for me. Job was still there, like, six, like, like you were told. Hey, Burroughs will always yeah, be here. Yeah. It was, so I went back and worked for Burroughs. And then I, I joined the reserves. So I spent uh, 24 years in the reserves, so I actually got 30 years and retired as a captain. And I, I, I know that you were in Guam for a chunk of time. When were you in Guam? When, when, did you, when were you last in Guam? Oh, man. I was probably last in Guam in the 80s. I went over there as a maintenance officer, and we did two weeks. We considered good planning to leave Chicago in February and go to the South Pacific in Guam and do our two weeks active duty. Good plan. So we did that, and the unit I was in was the Uganda-Guam unit, and Uganda was the, uh, where the Naval Air Station yeah. was there. And uh, we won the Bartold Trophy one year, which was the best reserve unit in all the Navy. Mm. And uh, we won that one year. I think when I was the training officer, we got that. And then I became, I was CO of the Midway unit. I actually got to fly out to Midway on a P3. Okay. Landed on Midway Island. Not many people can say they've been on Midway Island. Uh, then I was the CO of the uh, Comnav Air Land, which was at, uh, down in Norfolk. And that was an, a nice tour for me. And then the, the Agana Guam unit ran into some tough times and they fired the CO and they brought me back in and we turned that around. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found this, this uh, Marine poster and it was a couple A4s and it said on top. And so I took this poster and I, I redid it a little bit and I says, put this poster up, we're getting back on top. And we took the, the Ghana Guam unit back up and then I went out there as a CO with the unit to Agana Guam. And, uh, and Captain uh, Butterfield was a CO out there, and he was involved in that uh, debacle when they tried to get the uh, hostages out of uh, mm -hmm. Iran. He says, well, we could have used some good helo pilots on that, that <sighs> mission. For sure. And, uh, but, uh, so that was like the, the late 80s I was mm -hmm. in, in Guam. I just know so, I was in Guam in like 1998. Late 1992 or early 1993 is when I got there. I was thinking maybe you and I were in the Navy at the same time. And <laughs> you're, you're yeah, a baby, you're a baby, you by a few this, years. Yeah. You're so, looking yeah. at two 75-year-old guys. I'm 70. <laughs> we're 76. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, what but, the, Oh, go ahead. But I, I love Guam. Was a great place. I love. Yeah. That's and I had a nice tour with the with the reserves. Then my last four years, I was on the Admiral Staff as a deputy for training and readiness up at uh, Great Lakes, because they had closed Glenview at the time. I thought he had actually talked him into keeping Glenview open, but I think, because uh, we met with some of the senators, and that was when Brack was going on mm -hmm. and everything, and I had to give a speech about why we should keep Glenview open to these people, and then I had lunch with him at a table, and I, th I thought I felt I had talked him into keeping Glenview open. <laughs> But I think they went you know, behind doors and mm -hmm. says, well, you can have Glenview or you can have Great Lakes. And you, so the Navy had to make a pick mm -hmm. and they took Great Lakes, which now today 
is the sole training center. If you go in the Navy as enlisted, you're yep. going through Great Lakes. 100%. Yep. But I was on the Admiral's staff up there for about four years. And, and, then, then, and then I retired out of there. And how long did you stay at Burroughs for? for? I was at Burroughs until it merged with Spiri. And I actually got my picture in the last Burroughs annual report because <laughs> I had just sold the largest computer that Burroughs had to the University of Chicago Medical Center, which was the A15. And it was a big deal. And then it merged with Spiri. Then, it went, then I went to digital. And I ended up working for SAIC. Okay, yeah. Which is just up here yeah. in La Jolla, and uh, I was in telecommunic. I worked in telecommunications, and we did all the software development for the RBOX. And I had Ameritech. Then SBC bought Ameritech and bought Pac Bell. So I had offices in Chicago, down in San Antonio. I actually, had an apartment because that's where the main executives were. And then out in San Ramon, where Pac Bell was. And I can remember I was with our president one day, and I said, you know. If I put all my offices together, they'd be bigger than your office. <laughs> and he looked at me and says, you know, I could fix that. <laughs> so so I, I was, had responsibility for all the art box, you know, kind of uh, the software operations for their, their back-end systems and stuff. Got it. So. And so what about you, Carl? How long did you make it in the Navy after you got <laughs> home from Hal 3? You know, uh, John admitted the part about, uh, about Glenview that's really important, and that was uh, – I'd grab a T-28. I was in that squadron for training squadron for a while and we'd take off Earl and I several times and come one time Earl shot and I another time uh, got him Tim Zimmer and Zip as he's referred to by some. Zip and I would fly up and we'd go up and just stay in with John and eat and sleep for free and give him a hard time. But uh, yeah, I I um, I uh, was in Lakehurst there and I I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was still a USNR. I hadn't augmented, but I was thinking about it. And uh, uh, and Steve Schroeder and I were both on track to go into, believe it or not, going to the FBI. Steve actually went in. Uh, I didn't. I was my interviewee. I never forget his name was Jay Wallace Leprod. He ended up running the New York office. One of my questions in my interview, I thought it was being funny. I said. Well, we got you got you know J Edgar Hoover and you got J Wallace Laprade and would I be Carl Dean Nelson or C Dean Nelson? He didn't laugh, <laughs> but he's a good guy. Afterwards, he said that was funny. But so I, it came down to go back to school or teach or whatever. So, but I I went down was flight instructor and went to the West Coast uh, at HSL thirty five. Uh, uh, Got picked up early for lieutenant commander. Commander did my last tour on Oppo Five. Uh, I got offered a job by a guy on a ship. My last cruise, and my wife, who at that time and rest her soul, she's passed on. But she was not a fan of the Navy and didn't like being a naval officer's wife, as you know. That's some work. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, so, uh, but we ended up getting divorced later. But I always kid and say that. My, I got up because my wife didn't like the Navy, but it turned out she didn't like me. I can't imagine that. But So I did 10 years, 11 months, and nine days. Navy was great to me. I can't imagine anybody was treated better than I was treated by the Navy, just a, a kid from Coos Bay, Oregon, and literally. And John was saying today the Navy's got a great system of evaluating and promoting the right people, with some exception he was looking at me. But other than that. <laughs> but I met my wife when I was stationed at at Lakehurst. Oh, so, yes. 
So I was just getting I was just getting ready to get out of the active duty Navy, and uh, I met my wife. We dated, and then they the CO wanted me to be the ONC of a, take a detachment out, and uh, it was the North Atlantic cruise detachment on the Boeing. And I says I went to him. I says you know there's people that are more qualified to take this detachment out than me, and he says he looked at me and says. You're the most qualified, and you're going. <laughs> <laughs> and he knew I was dating Gene at the time. So I had just met Gene. So I, we dated for a couple months, and I hit, was gone for two months on this North Atlantic cruise on the Bowen. And, uh, and Carl was on was ONC of a debt prior to me. And so we both know this, knew the CEO of the ship, which was just a great guy. And we were pretty close to him. And uh, <laughs> came back and uh, got, out of the, got out of the Navy in December, got married in January, and started back at Burroughs in February. And somebody says, you know, you shouldn't do three life-changing situations like that in succession. You should put some time between them. But uh, so we dated for eight months. I was gone for two of those months, and we got, eight months later we got married. And we just had our uh, 47th wedding anniversary last January. Outstanding. Great. What did you end up doing, Carl, in the rest of your, once you got out of the Navy? Uh, I got recruited to a train corporation. I I ran an office there and then uh, uh, lived in Huntington Beach, California, and and, and Newport Beach, and uh, uh, then got recruited to uh, Boise Cascade Corporation Office Products Division. Uh, I was general sales manager, and I never sold anything in my life. <laughs> I bought some stuff, but I didn't sell anything. So then, then I ended up getting recruited to uh, to the Hershey organization, eleven Western states of a snack and beverage, and then I did uh, uh, a tour of craft. Matter of fact, a couple times in Chicago, yeah. John and I had dinner there with his dad. He was a great man. Uh, John F. Farr Senior was uh, uh, no reason, no wonder that he and Ike stayed close and communicated through the 50s when Ike was president. And he still had time to communicate with your dad to uh, make a couple of uh, phone calls for your aunt, was it? Or Aunt Riss. Yeah. And you know, just a good guy. And his dad was absolutely a class act. I always sat by him uh, at John's wedding and other times. I always was trying to pick that man's brain because there's a lot there. And just, uh, he was a senior executive at Canteen Corporation, which was a contract feeder for um, auto companies and so forth. Vending machines. Right? Yeah, and vending machines and so forth. Just a good guy. Uh, but anyway, I did craft, and then I uh, got recruited and met a guy on an airplane, and he had my seat. And uh, I had a lot of frequent flyer points, and so I had 1A. Uh, first class in those days, United, and I could roll in after a long week, and I commuted from California, worked in Chicago. How about that? Oof. And uh, beat myself up, and uh, he had my seat, and we got chatting, and he hired me to be my first CEO job. And so running, instead of running a, a three a $300 million section of craft on, on uh, healthcare food service, I had a $3 million uh, muffin company I ran, but, but it took more work and uh, paid less money, and that's how smart I am. So, uh, took a got to be part of a company going public. After that, uh, we sold that company, 
uh, Gardenberger was a vegetarian Gardenberger. I had a 600-acre ranch. They thought I was a cattle ranch. They thought I was an ideal candidate with my food background to run a, run a, a veggie burger company. And uh, all my employees had earrings and, uh, and uh, uh, flip-flops. And uh, what, do they wear the, uh, what do they call those shoes? Uh, uh, those leather shoes. Birkenstocks. Uh, Birkenstocks. <laughs> they all had Birkenstocks. I know who you're talking about. And so here I'm sitting there in a three-piece and starch shirt, almost as much starch John's got. And uh, anyway, it was a great deal. It was uh, a lot of fun. And then I ended up last year, and it was start my own company, uh, made olive oil up to 300,000 gallons a year. Uh, we were the second largest in the U.S. When I sold, I got lucky. Some Some guys came along and made me an offer I didn't understand, and they came back and doubled the offer, and then I understood. <laughs> so I sold. I've been the luckiest guy on the planet. I got two grown daughters, three grandkids, and uh, they were the grandkids helped me in the in the plant. They were always a cubby was born when I when I poured concrete. Uh, they think they own that plant, but great kids, uh, great life, luckiest guy on the planet. I live on a houseboat on Pine Flat Lake, six miles from Sequoia. How do you beat that? Tough to beat. I was talking to to Dick Couch. Okay. And Couch, we were talking, and I, was, and I hadn't gotten back to him for a couple of weeks. He said, what happened? I said, I'm sorry, Dick. I dropped my phone in the lake at Pine Flat. He said, you know what? If you drop your phone in a lake, something's going right. <laughs> that sounds like a good plan. Yeah. And that's it. That's, uh, it's been great. And uh, it's great to be connected with John and his family, all of them. Gene didn't get much ink, but Gene is the real brains of the outfit. And uh, the reason he was nervous about going cruising, the real story behind the backstory, uh, the Manasquan Inn is where, is where Gene worked. And she was a school teacher working the Manasquan Inn in the summertime. Good-looking woman, and she still got it. And she, and she had lots of suitors, and John did not want to leave her unattended. I left my car with her when they went on the cruise because I didn't want to leave her with my other roommate. <laughs> great, 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 great. John's great, got a great well, family. Yeah, and when I first went to got orders to Lakers, I said, well, New Jersey. I just want to get in and out of New Jersey without meeting a Jersey girl. She changed my whole perspective of Jersey girls. We have three lovely boys and uh, eight grandchildren, and uh, so now I'm tired, and we're just traveling the country because one lives in the Chicago area that we're spending some time with. One lives in Boulder and his family. We just spent a week with them. We're out here in California because my oldest son and his family are out here, so we're out there, out here visiting them. So, uh, great family. If I can add about Jean, if I add one little trivia thing, she's sort of a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Other than the fact that on her ID card, a military ID, it says Commander Jean Farr. Uh, I don't know how she got that. But other than that, you ever go to Jersey Mike's yeah. uh, subs? Yeah. There's a picture in there of, of the original. <laughs> he's laughing. The original Jersey Mike's. It was on in Point Pleasant, wasn't it? Right, yes. And it's the first, Jersey, first sub I ever had in 1970. And there was a picture of the original Jersey Mike's. And sure. the, the guy that owns it now worked there and bought it out. But there's a picture there of the beach at Point Pleasant. And there's a girl, is it yellow or red, the bathing suit? I think it's red. Yeah, anyway, there's a girl in a two-piece bathing suit. That's his wife. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, that's outstanding. That's going to be the most Googled picture after this uh, after this podcast comes out. You're welcome, Gene. <laughs> well, look, we've been going for a, a little over two hours now. Probably a good, probably, I mean, this is just a, a good place to wrap it up. Um, Barn, any, you got anything else, John? i just like to say that I think my time in the Navy, I, it was the best part of my life, especially that six years I was active duty. And it's been a privilege and an honor to have served and supported the United States. And I think more people should, should feel that way. And, and I, to go through and do that, and the people we had that we led, hopefully we've made a positive impact on other people's lives and made it better. But uh, it's been a privilege and an honor to, to serve our country. Carl? Ditto. I, I, I remember, um, as you talked about the question about people's attitudes and we came back and so forth, uh, my brother was uh, killed in, in, uh, in action uh, in 1968. Uh, I was in my last week off of candidate school. I hadn't, we were getting ready to uh, put on the bar and be for real. And then they extended us four weeks and we went 16 instead. But I met his body in San Francisco and escorted the body from San Francisco to Coos Bay, Oregon. And uh, in spite of what was going on in the country then, it was the most moving experience you can imagine. The way the airlines handled his body with respect, how they put him on, they, they put him on first, took him on, I'm sorry, put his body on last and took it off first when we landed how the captain held all the people in their seats until my brother was off, until I was exiting the aircraft. Uh, and since I've been retired, I've done a lot of traveling. John sees more of Vini <clears throat> and Earl and, and Tim more than me they like, but I see a lot of good in America in spite of what the news programs may put out even today. The 24-hour news cycle is our problem. I see good people out there that are, and I don't see racism at all. I see good people doing good things, being kind to each other, and particularly to an old man who they've got no reason to be kind to, mm-hmm. and that's me. And I see it in every state I've been. I have no bad experiences, and I've driven probably 200,000 miles the last five years around our country. Yeah. I've even been to Honduras. Still met a lot of good people. <laughs> I just like to say I've enjoyed this, and I'd like to thank my son Eric. He's the one that talked me into doing this. I'm not big on going out and touting what I've done and things like that. So he, I'm glad he took the, you know, took charge of it, and came through and, uh, you know, talked to Helen and got this arranged. And I've, I've enjoyed the, the two hours that we've spent here with you, and uh, I've listened to some of your broadcasts and uh, enjoyed them as well. So I want to thank you for having us and and i want to thank eric for helping arrange it for me absolutely thanks to eric and and thanks to both of you um obviously thanks for coming on and and sharing your story and sharing the story of of what you all did more important thanks for what thanks for what you guys did for america and um And for going out and holding the line 
And on top of all that, um, a profound thank you and a solemn salute to the 44 members of the Sea Wolves, pilots and gunners, that were killed in action in Vietnam and who gave their lives for us and to take care of my forefathers in the SEAL teams. We will not forget their sacrifice. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, John. Thank you. And with that, Carl Nelson and John Farr, Sea Wolves, have left the building. Always good to hear those stories, man. Yeah. I'm glad we're able to capture them. This is a unit that was founded and commissioned in Vietnam and then decommissioned in Vietnam. This, the whole life of the Sea Wolves was in Vietnam. That's it. I'm pretty sure most highly decorated naval air squadron in history, mm-hmm. which is also kind of crazy. So good to be able to pass on these, uh, capture these stories. Appreciate them coming on here. And well, these guys were always ready to go. Echo Charles. Yeah. Yes. I'm thinking that we should probably do our best so we are also always ready to go. What do you think? To go, yes, I agree. So we've got to stay capable. That's kind of the deal. That's the gig. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to do? We're working out. We're reading, obviously. We're doing jujitsu, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Come on, you got to be thankful for that. I'm always thankful There was for a that. time where we were doing a lot less jujitsu. We don't like that at all. Capability hit some challenges. All mm-hmm. good, though. We're back. We're doing jujitsu. We're reading. We're working out. We're maintaining relationships as well. Don't forget about that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So through this path that we're all on, you run into some pain. Yep. Unfortunately, it's the truth. It's reality. Pain is part of it. We'll say pain and suffering. Okay, I'm overstating that because it isn't a level of suffering because you're going to suffer regardless. If you're not on the path, you're going to suffer those consequences of not being on the path. If you're on the path, you're going to suffer what the path gives you to suffer. Mm-hmm. So you're going to need some help. We got help. Jocko Fuel Supplementation for your body and for your brain. So first thing we have is Jocko Discipline Go. In a can, in a powder, and in a capsule. So speaking of the cans, these are your energy drinks of today. Mm-hmm. The real energy drinks. Modern. Now. Updated. Updated. Upgraded. Upgraded. Beneficial. Benevolent, but but yeah, benevolent. benevolent sure, that's yeah. what they are. They're good. They are. They're good for you. Energy yep. drink that you get all the front end benefits of an energy drink, and then you get back end benefits rather than back end detriments, as it were back in the day. I like where you're going with it's this. Not like that. So yes, discipline go. Uh, you can get them at Wawa. You can get them at Vitamin Shop. You can get them on JockoFuel.com. Also, with Jocko has this stuff for your immunity, stuff for your joints. Stuff for your uh, additional protein that you might need. Keep in mind this additional protein, mulk, it's called mulk, mm-hmm. is the best tasting protein that there is. In fact, even if you were to start ranking just straight up desserts, like if you just started ranking desserts oh, yeah. straight up, it's on. It's in the game. 
I mean, it's beating. There's a lot of desserts, in my opinion, it's straight up beating, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And legit desserts, too. Yeah. That it's beating. Yes, um, let's see. There's a whole a whole genre of cakes. In fact, most cakes are getting beat by milk, in my opinion. I usually think cakes are dry. Okay. So you, you're correct, actually. And here's a little case study. So my mother-in-law is in town. Mm-hmm. Cool. And she likes these things. Like I, They're almost like shortbread cakes. Okay. And they come in this lavish, like, container. Okay. And, like, half of them are, like, coated with, I don't know, what do you call Icing or okay. whatever you call that. You know, the one that at some point it was soft and now it hardened and now okay. it's a shell. But it's like, anyway, I forget. <laughs> I forget what they're called, but they're whatever. So okay. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. She, and so my. Did you, did you get that hitter? Uh, you know, I got into them. <laughs> okay. Sure. Just to see what up, you know. Yeah. They look good. Yeah. So I was like, cool. And I eat one. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like of course, good. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, I wasn't evaluating it like this at mm-hmm. the time, but I'm like, cool, good. Thinking back on those things, whatever they were called, milk is better. Milk is straight up better. Milk is better. Yeah. Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. I'm talking about this front end taste. Yeah, 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 yeah. Straight, straight up, up better. Oh yeah, just the sheer pleasure of drinking milk yep. is better than those cakes. Yep. And the thing is, the cakes weren't like, oh, these are like surprisingly junk no, or no, stale. No. They're it was legit. Good. They came through for it, what they were yeah. doing. Yeah. This and is what milk I'm saying. Is better. If you start graphing all desserts, yeah. like milk is is in the upper percentage. Correct. And there's and it's absolutely good for you. Yep. Yep. So there you go. That's the good news right there. I think uh the you know, be little for the for the design yep. is gonna get a Nobel Eat Prize. <laughs> No, will you guys? Hell yeah! Right, hey yep. man, Thank you, you probably got to put that stuff together. It's hard to make that stuff taste so good. It's not easy. Yeah, I would think like it's we like, go through iteration after iteration after iteration to make it taste that good. Yeah. It's not like oh cool, here's you know the ingredients, put them in there now, it tastes good. No, it's yeah. hard. What's weird is like I didn't think about that, and when Belittle was kind of explaining, it, I was like, oh, that makes sense. And then I realized, oh shit, that applies to a lot of stuff then, mm-hmm. because. Okay, so we're doing like flavor testing for mm-hmm. the energy. This drink. is for—is this for your drink? You know, mango we're, mayhem. We're we're doing some uh, tasting and right. stuff. So he's like, "Hey, what do you think about this?" this is before when we we're doing grape or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's like, "What do you think about this?" I was like, "Yeah, I want it to be like more, more. Mm-hmm. Like I need more of this particular flavor, or whatever." He's like, "Okay, cool. Here's the but keep in mind that yeah. in turn does this to yeah. it, and it's like, oh man, this is like a balance. It's a balancing thing. act. So you got to balance it perfect. Yep. And sometimes straight up, and this is what happened with that particular flavor. He's like, sometimes it simply won't work." given what you're trying to do yep. just simply won't work otherwise you got to either add sugar which that's the main thing you just right, got to add right, sugar right, right. right which we're not doing we're, we're not obviously. doing exactly right so the same thing for milk same thing for like those milk bars like everything i was like oh man you guys got some you have a task mm, in front it's of a you. hard job oh yeah but, but i think the hey, nobel eats prize is going to go to be little yeah and the jocko fuel uh, what what are they? The food team. They're making the. They're making it. Yeah. Mixing it up. FedExing it to me. <laughs> the real gym, man. So if you want any of that stuff, go to jockofuel.com. Hey, by the way, look. We know that shipping can be expensive, and we know that there's other, let's say, global organizations in the world that offer free shipping. Mm-hmm. If you're a member of their little club. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. And that's good. I'm not taking away from that. That's a good business model. Yeah. We know that we have to offer something so that we can also give you the equivalent 
value. So check it out. If you subscribe to any of these things, you don't have to pay for shipping. Shipping is free. You know what I thought of actually just now about the some global organizations and their right. free shipping situation? Yeah. You pay a membership fee for that. Oh, so we're not. It's not even free. It's, it's, yeah, it's not fee, free at all. If you buy nothing. Yeah, they scammed you. You still pay. <laughs> You're still paying. Guess what? You're still paying. So that's kind of the better, uh, what do you call it, like the superior yeah, element yeah. in this. Hey, if you don't. Isn't that weird? They trick you. Kind of Pay like us money and it's free. <laughs> it's one of those switcheroos, you know, where it's like, no, no, you got yeah. free shipping. Now, just for the ability to have free shipping, just pay us a membership fee. So That's it's like, very oh, strange. Okay. All right, I see Look what at you're you doing. with the catch. Uh, yeah. Yep, there you go. Vitamin Shop, you can also get it at, you can also get it at Wawa for the drinks. And people are asking a lot about a lot of other retailers across the country. Mm-hmm. We're working on all of them. We got, uh, the team is out there all the time. There we are. We're getting our 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 phone rings all day long, which is awesome because people want the the distributors, the stores want to have it in there, and we are getting it in there. We're being strategic. We don't want to outdo our supply chain right now as we build out our logistic capabilities. This is a military operation, right? Mm-hmm. This doesn't mean we're going to be overly cautious, I mean, we're gonna push the envelope, and we've been pushing the envelope, you know? There's been some times we run a little bit thin on the logistics train, but we're still pushing forward, but we don't wanna totally overwhelm our logistic train, so we are, we're getting there. It's taking a little longer than we want it to, understood, but we want a, a solid base to get there, so if you, we're working on it, and we will be worldwide. We'll be nationwide pretty quick. There you go. We're working on it. So everyone can have the benefits. Yeah, yeah. It's true. I feel kind of bad with all the benefits just in my cupboard. I know, but <laughs> Also, Origin USA. This is where you can get your American-made stuff. Denim for jeans. Yep. We got boots. Got wallets and belts and whatnot. Yep. Jiu-jitsu stuff. Yep. By the way, since we're talking about NOM today, oh, this yeah. if you don't know this, the seals in Nam much of the time wore jeans. Why do they wear jeans? Because they were more comfortable, more durable, and better. So you can see all kinds of pictures of the seals in Nam. You can see them in the Mekong Delta wearing jeans. And guess what? We have a pair of jeans based on that history. And they are called Delta 68. And I'm talking about 1968. So. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything cooler than Delta 68 for jeans? It's going to be very hard to find something they're, they're They're the most comfortable jeans you will ever put on your body. And by the way, they're also as comfortable as whatever else you could put on your legs as a human. Damn. There's nothing more comfortable. I probably would agree with that if I had some. But Oh, that's a bummer. That's completely my fault, by the way. Yeah, that's my fault. I should have had the whole world revolve around you more. <laughs> <laughs> probably right. Well, actually, technically, all I wear is shark fin shorts, okay. which are from Origin, by the, <clears throat> by the way. I don't know if they... I think they might be sold out of those, so that's a whole other story. Nonetheless, they do have geese and rash guards for jujitsu as well. Yep. All kinds of jujitsu stuff, compression stuff, like all, kind of, all made in America too, yep. by the way. I know I said that one time, but the way I said it is indicating that it's not as big of a deal as it really is in real Not life. to get crazy here, but if you need a gi, get an origin gi for sure, get a rift gi, because yeah. it's next level. It's another thing. It's another, it's another 
it's a complete elevation from whatever kind of gi you've ever worn in your life. The Rift gi is a totally new ball game. It's freaking awesome. So if you if you need a gi, get yourself a Rift gi. Well, yeah. So yeah. Again, originusa.com. Uh, check out all their stuff on there because there's a lot of stuff for me to go down the list right now and say all the stuff is going to take a long time. So go on there. Check. check I don't have that kind of patience right now. No. And believe me, I'm patient to be sitting here with you freaking time and time again as you put me through this. But it's all good, bro. I understand fully. <laughs> yeah. Nonetheless, that that's that's what it is. Also, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. The OG since day one, day five, <laughs> not day one, day five. Uh, so you go to JockoStore.com. This is where you can get Discipline Equals Freedom shirts and hoodies and hats. Some rash guards on there. Get after it. Shirts, hats, tank tops. Good. If you know what that means, you say good. If you know what that means, you want to represent, that's where you can get your shirts and hats mm-hmm. and hoodies. We've got shorts on there as well. So, yeah, a lot of good stuff on there. Um, we also have a free shipping subscription situation. And it's not the kind you got to pay for a membership just to have it. You get a shirt every month. A little bit different designs. Free shipping on that one as well. But, yeah, it's called the Shirt Locker. So that's on Jocko's store as well. So, yeah, if you want to check out check out that. If you like that, get that. And, and, by the way, all the stuff that we're talking about, if you want to support Mm-hmm. Want to give that support to the podcast? This is how you do it. Otherwise, it's like, oh, we will run. You know, people are out there running advertisements for um stuff. Yeah, stuff that you actually don't want. Registry cleaner for your uh computer hard right. drive. Look, nothing against registry cleaners <laughs> for your computer hard drives, but you don't yeah. want to hear about that when we're talking about freaking uh, Huey gunships. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to tell you about that. What we're talking about, Huey gunships. So, all the stuff, jockofuel.com, jockostore.com, originusa.com, if you want to support, we appreciate it. You know what's interesting? And this, I was talking to Jill, our boy Jill. Joe Moss? Yeah. And he reminded me of this. And I know know this. I know this like it's the back of my hand. Is Mm -hmm. that the expression? Anyway, I know this. But every once in a while, when I'm reminded of it, I'm reminded of the like a better term interestingness of it where all this stuff origin jeans jocko store stuff uh jocko fuel stuff this is all stuff that you that we actually use now and have before even th- like these exist this is it this is like just the better version now yeah. like shirt you're wearing right now oh that's from jocko store right there mm-hmm. the hoodie that i wear jocko store the shorts that i wear literally like these shorts are so wear- worn out because I wear them every single day, mm-hmm. that like it has the outline from my cell phone, mm-hmm. like on the pocket or whatever. The or drinks that we're drinking. Oh yeah, origin shorts though. By the way, yeah, like it's all. I have jo- I have JockoStore.com shorts on right now. Exactly right. With the digital pattern. Oh yeah, so it's not Digi like camo. <laughs> oh yeah, that's one of the options for sure. So it's not like oh yeah, support the podcast by um, buying some keychains that we sort of just made up or whatever. Which would be kind of cool, I guess. Keychains are cool because I use keychains, but they're not oh, arbitrary that's right. things. That's right. You're running around with your black belt keychain now. <laughs> that was a gift. Yeah, that was I a go gift. Charles. If you see him, maybe you okay. forgot he's a black belt. Okay. Don't worry, you won't okay. forget for long because he's got it on his keychain. <laughs> he's like, hey, oh, you, oh, do you want me to, here? Let me put these keys on the table where they're visible. Okay. Okay. There you go. First off, that was a gift from Mike from Jiu-Jitsu Magazine. Okay. I want him to do disrespect him okay. by putting it somewhere. All I'm saying is 
We know, we will all know you're a black belt when your keys go on the table, which is where they always go in front of everyone. Anyway, what I was trying to tell our people is that this is stuff that we use anyway, even before it existed. So it's not some arbitrary thing. We're saying, hey, support the podcast, by the way, we'll give you this this moderately valued thing. You know, it's like these are things that are like when you're in the game on the path. They're legitimately there as well. Check. Hey, subscribe to the podcast. Also check out a Jocko Unraveling podcast. That's me and Daryl Cooper, DC. Yeah. Talking about all kinds of stuff. Grounded podcast. We got the Warrior Kid podcast. We got JockoUnderground.com. That's our own platform, right? We can't just be we can't just be uh, parasites on these big platforms. Cause guess what? The the big platform might decide they're gonna scrape you off. And now what are you gonna do? Starve to death. Die. We're not gonna let that happen. We gotta have a contingency plan. If the big platforms decide to scrape off us because we're over there. No. Mm-hmm. We have our own platform. It's called Jocko Underground, jockounderground.com. You are helping us build it just in case these people get squirrely and they start injecting their behaviors into what we're doing. That's one of, see, that's the cool thing about a podcast. The cool thing about a podcast is you can do it at, well, if you are doing the podcast in an, in an old school way, which is, hey, we're just gonna do what we want, then you can do whatever you want. We can literally do whatever we want on this podcast. But what if platforms said, well, actually, we don't want you to do that, or we want you to do this, or we're gonna put an advertisement in there, whatever whatever they're gonna do, they can do, right? So we don't want to allow someone else to control what we are doing. So therefore, if you wanna help us out, you can go to jockounderground.com, and we're making, we make another little podcast for that. We're talking about interesting topics, adjacent topics. It costs money, it costs $8.18 a month to keep it rolling, but uh, if, look, if you can't afford that, we get it. We're not trying to exclude you from the team. We're not trying to exclude you from the movement. You can email assistance at jockounderground.com and we'll take care of that. Appreciate the support. We also have a YouTube channel, by the way. Yep. Speaking of platforms, yeah, we have a YouTube channel. This is where I put in a lot of work creatively mm-hmm. as the assistant director to many of these videos, the good ones. And if you want to check out my work, you want to see what what the the really the pinnacle of assistant directing, yeah. you can check some of these videos out yeah. on Jocko Podcast. YouTube channel. Yeah. Yeah, the epitome is that what you say? Or the pinnacle. Pinnacle Pinnacle of assistant directing. So my daughter, she's eight, Mm -hmm. by the way, so keep keep that in mind. Okay. Before you fly off the handle. So she you know, she's like, Oh yeah, you and Jock are YouTubers and I'm like, Oh okay ah, you know, maybe, maybe not, depends on what you mean, whatever. So she's like, Hey, what is like well what does Jocko do then? You know? I was like, well, he writes books or whatever. He's like, yeah, but he already wrote those books. Mm. Like, what does he do? Yeah, what's he doing now? <laughs> yeah, like, what does he do? And, you know, eight years old, you hear, what do you do? You, mm. That's what you think, right? You think, what do you do? What do you yeah. do when you wake up? Like, what does he do? Yeah. She knows what I do. I play on the computer all day. She knows that, you know, kind of thing. She <laughs> understands. Both of us know that. Yeah, <laughs> So, anyway. So, uh, I was like, oh, you know, whatever. He does his thing. She goes... Jocko hardly does anything. It's like you, she goes. She said straight up, "You do most of, like you do pretty much everything." 
And then so I kind of laughed. I was like, yeah, you're right. Jocko just talks. He's like, she's like, yeah, he just talks. Like, you're the one who has to film. You're the one who has to come home with this. You're the one who has Because she sees everything I do, oh, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, so next time she says something like that, I'll be like, well, you know, um, he does. He is the assistant director on some of these videos. There you so, go. you know. He, so now we know I am. I am. I am an employed individual. Yep. My my work is is the pinnacle yep. of effort. Yeah. So you're doing your part. That's <laughs> Check. So yes, YouTube channel we do have one. Uh, also, we have Psychological Warfare. <clears throat> it's an album we made. Jocko made technically uh, of him helping me through moments of weakness that I might have from time to time. Then we extended it to other weaknesses that others might have from time to time. So what you do, pop that in. When you're feeling the moment, you're going to skip that workout, you put it in. He's going to tell you why, why you should not do that. It's good one. If you want something to hang on your wall, get something cool to hang on your wall from Dakota Meyer. Flipsidecanvas.com is going to send you a bunch of cool designs. Check them out. And you're supporting Dakota Meyer. And if you're doing that, like your whole day is good, <laughs> in, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, got some books. Final spin. This is not a book about leadership. There may or may not be some leadership lessons in there. It's more a book about life and death and the and the journey that human beings go through and the pitfalls that they fall into and how they rise out of those or don't. You can check that out. It's coming out. If you want to get the first edition, you best order now. Because you know the publisher's like, well, you know, we don't want to invest too much in this. Because, yeah, it's like, okay, cool. So they're not going to print enough. You're not going to get one unless you're in the game. Get in the game. Also, leadership strategy and tactics field manual. The code, the evaluation, the protocol. Discipline equals freedom field manual. There's a new version out that has my head on it, but it's bigger than my original head. Sure. My head has grown. <laughs> Way the Warrior Kid, one, two, three, and four. Mikey and the Dragons. About Face by Hackworth, which I was honored to write the forward for. Extreme Ownership. And the dichotomy of leadership, the first two books I wrote about leadership with my brother Leif Babin. We have Echelon Front, which is a leadership consultancy, and what we do is solve problems through leadership. We have an online training platform, efonline.com, on there all the time. Courses on there. Get your team aligned. You don't. I don't need to come out to your location. Good deal. Dave Burke doesn't need to come out to your location. Leif Babin doesn't need to come out to your location. We're, we're, we're in your location. Virtually, check that out. We have some some live events that we do. One of them is called the Muster, and is two day leadership seminar. The next one is in Phoenix, August seventeenth and eighteenth, and then Las Vegas, October twenty eighth and 29th. Go to extremeownership.com if you want to get in the game. There, we have something. I don't even know if this will be out yet. We have the FTX, which is a field training exercise. You learn tactics. You apply the tactics with laser weapons. You apply the leadership tactics that we talk about all the time, and they will be ingrained into your brain when you are done with the field training exercise. Massive lessons learned. And if you want to help service members, active and retired, their families, Gold Star families, check out Mark Lee's mom. She has a charity organization. She gets... One of the things that she's doing is getting medical treatment for service members that the government doesn't cover, and she'll cover the whole bill. So if you want to help 
service members get those medical treatments, you can donate or get involved at americasmightywarriors.org. And if you want more of my grueling ruminations, or you need more of Echo's hypnotic hypotheses, you can find us on the interwebs, on Twitter, on the gram, and on Facebook, Echo's at Echo Charles. I am at Jocko Willink. And thanks once again to John Farr and Carl Nelson. Thanks to John's son, Marine, for getting us linked up. Thanks for sharing your stories, gentlemen, and thank you for your incredible service to our great nation, and thanks to all the sea wolves themselves that flew in Vietnam and risked their lives and sometimes gave their lives for their brothers in arms on the ground. And to all our military personnel and veterans around the world, thank you for what you do and what you have done to protect freedom and our way of life, and the same goes to our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, and all first responders, thank you for protecting us when we need you. And to everyone else out there, you never know when the call will come and you never know how much time you will have. In fact, you don't know how much time you have, so don't wait Don't hesitate. Don't procrastinate. Instead, like the mighty sea wolves of Helicopter Attack Squadron 3, go out there and get after it. And until next time, this is Echo and Jocko. Out.